Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, and the only corner, I am your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable analyst, Jamal Thomas. And that means you guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas, or Jamal Thomas. All right. I hope you guys are doing okay today and that you guys are having a phenomenal, awesome, beautiful morning. Um, you guys are probably on your way to work at this point, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. We're all here, and we're all here together. Um, I have news about the show going forward, um, and this is one of those things that is always awkward to talk about, always awkward to discuss, and yet... Here we are nonetheless. I've always been straightforward and honest with you guys, and this is going to be another one of those days where you do so. Um, Fern is no longer with the show. Um, I cannot go into why. It is a lot of effery, um, and I'm just going to say I'm unhappy with it all the way around. Uh, but nevertheless, this here we are, right? And I can't necessarily go into things that are going on behind the scenes um, or consternation and back and forths and the works and the likes. Um, I would just say this. Fault lines will continue. We will still continue to have awesome shows. And we will still continue to do the news, whether that's um, with us, meaning you and I alone, or whether that is with a co-host. But I would say this. From my own standpoint, her and I had a phenomenal chemistry. And we worked extraordinarily well together. And it is a loss. um, And I consider it such. So it's unfortunate. And it's one of those things that kind of broke down yesterday. It all seemed to happen at once. And like I said, I won't necessarily go into it. Definitely unhappy about it. And yet, here we are. And so, the show must go on. The news definitely continues. So let's do this. Let's get into the headlines after dropping that bomb. In the news. In national news, Greg Abbott, Governor Greg Abbott, backtracked on his, quote, get tough border approach on Wednesday, announcing during a news conference in Laredo, Texas, that the Lone Star State would cease its controversial inspection of cargo trucks at the southern U.S. border with Mexico. Abbott claimed that the move came because he and Nuevo Leon Governor Samuel Alejandro Garcia Subtudelva signed a memorandum agreeing to enhance border security on Mexico's side of the border. If you remember, Abbott also sent a busload of, um, of um, people who came into the country illegally, apparently, to D.C., So there is also that. Let's keep going. A fire in international news. A fire on board a Russian missile cruiser, Mosaba, has been contained and is at risk of further detonations, ammunitions. And the risk of further detonation, detonations of ammunition on board has been averted, the Russian Defense Ministry stated. The ship maintains its buoyancy and attempts are being made to tug it to a port for repairs, the ministry said. The cause of the fire, or the initial fire, which prompted a detonation of ammunition on board that severely damaged the ship, is still being investigated, the Defense Ministry noted. It further elaborated that the main missile ammunition stock was not affected by the incident. The ship crew, in turn, has been safely evacuated to nearby ships of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, the ministry also added. Also in international news, the UK will send asylum seekers to offshore processing centers in the eastern African nation of Rwanda, is part of the government's new plan to tackle soaring numbers of illegal immigrants being trafficked across the English Channel from mainland Europe. The blueprint, blueprint 
Jeez, can't talk this morning. Is due to be unveiled by Prime Minister Boris Johnson later on Thursday before Home Secretary Priti Patel signs a five-year agreement for a migration and economic development partnership in Rwanda's capital of Kigali. Let me repeat that, just so we're clear with that. There's all sorts of flack that is being thrown because of this. The UK will send asylum seekers to offshore processing centers in Eastern African nation of Rwanda as part of a government new plan to tackle soaring numbers of illegal immigrants. Now, if that sounds like the Trump plan of basically sending Mexi- um, migrants or people who are basically seeking asylum to Mexico, you will not be wrong on that. Boris Johnson fancied himself a cycle of Trumpian figure. And in this very particular case, he is also to issue with people calling for him to resign. And it seems that this is the stuff that he is basically clownishly going to. We'll see how far this lasts. We'll see if there's a backlash for it. At the very least, there's been quite much hits on him for doing so. At the very least, it's social media. I have no idea how this looks in the UK, though. Google announced this week that it has launched the new Switch to Android app in the iOS, which has been designed to make it easier for iPhone users to switch over to an Android-based device. iPhone and Android switchers can swap over photos, videos, contacts, calendar events, plus Google provides instructions on turning off iMessage and moving photos and videos to the iCloud. This is directly going for the head of the iPhone, clearly. And as somebody who has an Android, it is almost like a culture switch to try to move from an Android to um, an iPhone. It is a very weird thing. The devices just seem so separate or so different that the moment that you're trying to deal with one and you move to the other one, it just seems like a completely foreign device. This is, I suppose, Google's way of trying to make that switch that much easier. Let's keep going. In Earth and Science News, researchers identified the first known interstellar meteor that hit Earth some eight years ago. CNN reported details, new developments, and the discovery of recent years. It is indeed an uncommon occurrence in the solar system since the interstellar media is a space rock that originates from beyond our solar system. According to the report, Amir Siraj, who recognized the item as the first interstellar medium in 2019 article he co-authored as an undergraduate in Harvard University, was taken aback by the discovery. Siraj was working at Harvard University professor since Abraham Loeb on the study of Omu Marsa. Well, I cannot pronounce this word. This is basically the meteor that came into the solar system. Um, the first known interstellar object discovered in the solar system in 2017. A Mobumua, I believe is what it's called. This was the one that Avi Loeb um, was writing about and discussing about. And we've had Avi Loeb on the show a few times. In fact, I'll, I'll come back to that. That's a really interesting conversation. And Avi Loeb has been instrumental on in that. And in fact, he even wrote the book on a Mubumua. Um, So, great guess. In business news, the billionaire owner of Tesla, Elon Musk, offered his best and final offer to buy 100% of Twitter and an updated 13D filing that was filed on Thursday. Musk is offering 54.20 per share in cash. Musk is offering to acquire all of the out, quote, all of the outstanding common stock of the issuer not owned by the common or the reporting person for all cash considered valuing for common stock at 54.20 cent per share, unquote. The proposal was delivered in a letter to Twitter on April 13th. Musk says that Twitter needs to go private to go through the changes that needs to be made. Quote, I would need to reconsider my position as shareholder, unquote, Musk said, if his offer is not accepted. That is mad. Wow. We were just speculating in the office on whether or not this is what Elon Musk was thinking. 
that at the point where he basically backed away from this and taking the position on the board and everything else, the, the thought was, okay, well, maybe he's not going to be able to get what he wants just being on the board. And so maybe this is a situation where he's like, okay, fair enough. I can't get what I want on the board. I'll just buy it. I'll just buy it. And by the way, what is that going to mean for Twitter? That is a big, big story if that really goes through. And crazy story news, we have Senator Ted Cruz, who recently refused to comment on whether or not he would perform fellatio to the end world hunger. Let me repeat that. Senator Ted Cruz recently refused, refused to comment on whether or not he would perform fellatio, whether he would perform oral sex in order to end world hunger. Cruz and his co-hosts, along with special guest Liz Wheeler, were discussing the Supreme Court confirmation of Katanja Brown-Jackson, the first black woman to be nominated to such a post, when a student named Evan, Evan, or Evan went to the microphone in the audience and said a difficult moral problem. Quote, assuming it would end global hunger, would you fellatio another man or fellatiate another man? Unquote. He inquired as the audience erupted into laughter. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? That's a serious question. That's a... Look... That is a huge ethical, moral, and philosophical question that Ted Cruz is being presented with. Nobody should laugh at that. That is a very serious question. In no moment, the senator's co-hosting starting and started answering the question, quote, I actually think it's better. Yale answers this, unquote. Cruz said, as Knowles, who himself is a Yale graduate, claimed the young man answer to the young man's dilemma. You should answer that. You should answer that. I get that's a difficult question to answer. But the answer should just obviously be yes, right? You're talking about ending world hunger. I get it's an awkward question. And on the issue of Black Mirror, this is kind of a Black Mirror thing. On Black Mirror, uh, the UK Prime Minister was... I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. That, that's, that's just hilarious. Love that. God, I wish I would have been there for that. That's a great, great question. Cake and Cunnilingus Day. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Both of those things in the same day. Fair enough. National Pecan Day. National Ex-Bouses Day. I suppose that's my own ex. Tamil New Year's Day. I guess that's the Tamil Tigers. And we have National Dolphin Day. In day in history, we have, in 1969, the first major league baseball game in Montreal, Canada, is played. In 1981, America's first space shuttle, Columbia, returns to Earth. In 1961, the first broadcast, black broadcast, is televised from the Soviet Union. And in 1912, the passenger liner Titanic, deemed unsinkable, the unsinkable ship, is hit by an iceberg on its maiden voyage and begins to sink. I love this. The ship will go under the next day with a loss of 1,500 lives. And no, it's not that I love the 1,500 lives. There's something about the brass cojones, the, 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 the just the stones to say, this is unsinkable, this is unsinkable. This is something that under no circumstances could happen. And we know because of our godlike proclamations of science that this cannot happen. And then the very next day on the first voyage, it sinks. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. The one I want to go back to, and I guess there are two in this, right? One is the Amuamua. So we had Avilo, Professor Avilo, um, was on the show. And Avilo basically wrote the book on this interstellar object. Now, his argument, and he postulated this, he wasn't able to show this as a flat fact, but he was able to write the book on this and give, I would say, compelling evidence in regards to his hypothesis on this. His hypothesis was basically that this is not just an interstellar object, that the object is not acting as if it's going on its own power, on its own trajectory, 
that is not behaving as something you would expect to be just something fully ballistic, just something falling through space at miraculous speeds and that are basically being pushed and pulled by the gravitational forces of the object that it's going around. That's not what this is doing. Avi was making the argument and postulating that basically this was some kind of prehistoric interstellar alien device that on some level that this was something from some of the civilization. And his argument was based on this notion that it's not behaving normally, that it's seeming to either slow down or it's either you know, the way it's moving. It's moving in a way that is not necessarily going in the way that you would think is just entirely ballistic. And even in doing some of the research and the way it looks and the way that it's shaped, all of those things, he was postulating some pretty heavy stuff. And like I said, he was writing this. And as he was postulating this, the biggest aspect of this was, is this from A, this object that is outside of our system is coming from outside of our system and is not entirely an issue or something that is purely ballistic. That, of course, at massive headlines in which case I think Daily Mail and many other places were covering it. And because Ave was Harvard, and because of his pedigree and everything else, this got a huge amount of attention. And, of course, all sorts of interviews and everything else. Ave, if you remember, or Professor Avi Loeb, also was the gentleman that basically opened up the private sector UFO program. Now, Ave did this because his thought was, all right, the government is going to have its program. We, as scientists, need to study this issue. There's a question that is being presented to the world as a world. And as a world, we need to be able to engage that. And in the same way that the government can have the sources and everything else, the government on some level is going to be basically biased because what it's going to be looking at, A, is classified information. B, most of that stuff is going to be through military installations, which means you're going to get some sort of a jaded point of view. Say, for example, that you have a thousand UFO sightings that are taken. And let's say the government takes track of those sightings. Okay, fair enough. If the government is looking at those sightings through military installations and everything else, how do you know that the totality of the sightings are taking place in those areas? Meaning it's not a situation that this is just where you are looking, not necessarily where they are actually showing up. And therein lies the rub. If you are looking at this purely from the standpoint of just government and science of those governments and military installations and military aircraft, well, if there are military aircraft that are looking for UFOs and they're finding UFOs, then how do you know? that it's not other places, and this is not just a situation to which you were just looking for them. Well, that's the rub. And so obvious thing is very important in the sense that obvious, like, look, we have universities, we have satellites, we have all of these other devices all across the world and all across the United States that start using that stuff and marshalling that stuff to the pursuit of trying to figure out what's real. There's a mystery that we are being presented with as a world. Are we going to shrink from that challenge in the way that we've did for the last 80 or 90 years or so and lie to the public on the reality of the situation? Or is this going to be a challenge that humanity confronts and confronts it directly, despite the mystery, despite the gravity, despite the mass existential mystery of all of this? And the question we're presented with, there is something on the other side of that that is indicative of a reality that we have yet to confront, yet to face, and have shrinked away from. And I'm saying, we are being presented with this as a world. And one of the ways we find out what is going on, that we start to investigate and confront this, that we start to address this as a world, is through investigation. Yes, the DNI report or the Office of DNI report kind of made the point of, yes, this need, we need to remove the giggle factor, we need to focus on this stuff. Yeah, that is true. But it's also true that from the standpoint of scientists, from the standpoint of universities, from the standpoint of all of these installations, Avi even makes the point of, even if we need to build technology specific and built to purpose for this investigation, then that is indeed what we should do. 
we are being presented with a question as a world. It's time to get to the bottom of the answer. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, back with the Soapbox segment in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm typically joined with my co-host, Fern Franzak, but we kind of addressed that early on. Um, but we guys are coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys live in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what I am putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. I look out at the world, being in this country, and I often say precariously perched at the edge of the universe or at the edge of the world. And as I look out at what is taking place in the United States, what the media is doing, what the government is doing, and what those stupid idiots in NATO that is willing to do going forward. I have to question whether or not this president is, really is deranged. Whether or not the dementia has gotten and warped his brain to such a degree that he would inch this country closer and closer to a war. It has become painfully clear that the United States is getting far more involved in this conflict. And despite the fact that the Ukrainian government is not going to win this war, that none of these European leaders or even the people in the White House believe that Ukraine can win this war, they're still continuously dumping more and more and more and more weapons. Again, the article was very clear that the uncomfortable truth is that many of these nations will be willing to fight to the last dead Ukrainians. So despite the fact that they can't win, despite the fact that troops are surrendering en masse, or for that matter, being encircled, you still have a deranged president of the United States that is continuing to dig that ditch that much further, upping ante on the weapon systems that they are basically putting into the country. And you have to ask, why is he doing this? Not just why is he doing this, why is Zelensky, Zelensky willing to allow his people to die in mass like this? Why are you willing to have your troops get surrounded and utterly and entirely smashed? Regardless of what the U.S. is saying about this war effort and the way that it's going and the perspective that it's giving, as if things are going monstrously wrong and everything else. Look, the hair on fire activity of the United States and NATO should get across that this is not going according to plan. Look at the level of inflation. That inflation number that came out yesterday was farcical that they put out. That number is far worse than what that is. And when you start going into the breakdown, you get to see how bad the various items actually are. Issues of gas, issues of food, et cetera. And I would even point out that Biden's derangement the degree of his hysteria and the way that he is talking about this stuff and the level of investment that he is basically putting into Ukraine. Again, I would ask the question, how much is Ukraine worth to you as an American citizen? And is it that important to have Ukraine and the U.S. orbit that you are basically willing to pay this much in food costs, this much from the standpoint of the level of inflation that various countries are having, the level of famine that is going to erupt? from this particular conflict taking place. And again, when I point out that this conflict not only did not need to take place, that it was not an act of God, that it is not a situation that, oh, Putin is just crazy and everything else. 
They are real security concerns that not only is the U.S. and NATO nations flagrantly ignoring and trying to use propaganda to basically cover up the fact that those security concerns exist, that if the exact situation presented to the United States, we would not tolerate it. Was the United States okay with Cuba as a sovereign nation in the way that we like to say Ukraine is a sovereign nation? And if Cuba was able to basically get weapons, materials, munitions, where they could have those missiles aimed and targeting the United States, if Cuba is indeed a sovereign nation in the way that Ukraine is a sovereign nation. Why wasn't the United States okay with Russia and Cuba or the Soviet Union and Cuba coming up with a relationship? Why wasn't it okay with those missiles being added into the country? Why wasn't it okay with those missiles being aimed and targeted at the United States? Why on earth did the U.S. see that as a major provocation? And let's be clear, Cuba wasn't even on the border. We're talking about NATO expanding to the border and then getting to the point of Ukraine and knocking over the Yanukovych government, a government that was elected by Russian speakers and by Eastern speakers. And a dirty secret that they continuously avoid is that this war had been going on for eight years. Nobody cared in this country when they were killing the Russian speakers. Nobody cared at all when those republics basically pulled away after voting and seeing the radically Russophobic government that basically took over, pushed by the proxy, by the U.S. in many respects. Even having the audio tapes of Victoria Newland basically picking and choosing who was going to be head of that government. We've played those audio tapes. The point I'm making here is that hole is always left in American media where they don't quite deal with that. Because the reality of it is if the American public had a contextual understanding of how this conflict took place, the provocations that were involved, and the machinations that took place in order to drag Ukraine into the U.S. orbit, and for that matter, even ignore any of the requests but security concerns being addressed, all of that stuff, if they fully contextually was giving that, they would be apoplectic because what is taking place is they are paying for the malfeasance or the, let's say the, the machinations of these governments, this need for this geopolitical gamesmanship, whether you're talking about in Ukraine, uh, NATO or whether you're talking about the United States. And instead of being honest with the American public, knowing that the American public would have serious qualms with this notion that you guys are screwing around in other countries and that stuff is having a fallback effect on us, the moment that they would understand that, they would be out there protesting in mass. They would be apoplectic over that. We're talking about thousands of dollars extra. And this is not for people like Jen Zaki. We got to pay for our values. It's not that. Those people would be massively insulated in regards to the amount of cash that they're having. No, it's the average American that doesn't have $600 in the bank in order to pay for an emergency that takes place. It's the average American that is going to look at the gas increase as a tax that Biden in no way, regardless if I'm coming out, say, oh, we're going to release the gas reserves and everything else. It's a reserve, right? It's not an infinite amount. And it's very clear at this point that NATO does not have a replacement, that Germany is not on board for this, basically saying their industry would collapse if they tried to get rid of Russian gas in the way that they were trying to do it. And then you have one provocation after the next where the U.S., is coming out saying this hair-raising stuff that there is zero evidence to back up. And if anything, it comes across as if this is once again another attempt to basically lie in order to um, get the American public into a mindset of a white hat, black hat phenomena, which is kind of my point. And it's ultimately why I was so apoplectic on this notion that they've been lying to the public en masse. Before I go fully into this, I do want to repeat <laughs> the story that came out on NBC News where they were basically making the point that the White House and the administration has been lying in mass. 
And I'm repeating that first because as I go into the other parts of the story, I wanted to make it clear that there is not just evidence that they were lying, but that the media comes out and admits the White House has been lying for months. They've been lying in mass. And built into that is we have been carrying those lies. It was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. The U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing their chemical agents um, in Ukraine. President Joe Biden said it publicly, but three officials told NBC News this week there's no evidence that Russia has bought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. They said that the U.S. released the information to deter Russia. Think about that. There are no weapons there. There's no chemical weapons there. They just lied. They just made it up. Why is that okay? Why is that okay? And why is that okay for you to carry those lies? And are there not massive, significant implications and consequences for you basically putting out narratives uncritically, by the way, to the public that are self-serving to the White House's point of view and self-serving from the standpoint of state? Whatever reason and excuse you come out with, well, putting out those lies, let's just be very clear that the White House has been lying in mass, voluminously so. And the media has been uncritically carrying those lies. And this article by NBC News, in a break with the past, U.S. using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. In most of these cases, the intel wasn't rock solid. They just made it up. The article triumphantly talks about them lying in mass. Now, the point that I'm making here is the moment you admit that you've been lying to the American public in mass, why should I believe anything else you're saying, especially if it's self-serving and in pursuit of your main objectives in this conflict? You are basically going on a wartime footing for Ukraine, a country that most people didn't know existed, could not find it on a map, had zero concerns about, and yet all of a sudden, according to the U.S. media, is the most important thing in the world, so much so that you should be willing, willing, to go into a global recession and a recession in the United States in pursuit of dragging and keeping Ukraine in the U.S. orbit. This is utterly absurd, especially considering it was the U.S. that helped knock the country over in the first place. It's absurd. So now, so now, chemical weapon strike. That's what we're hearing. Or we, Russia attacked the train station. That's what we're hearing. And the reality of it is, the weapon systems that they're talking about from the standpoint of the train station strike wasn't in the Russian inventory. Wasn't in the Russian inventory. That is becoming more and more clear as people track down the various serial numbers and everything else. Was in the Ukrainians' inventory. But again, can you really expect an honest appraisal of events from a country that is basically owned up to the fact that it has been lying in mass for months? This is a big, big deal. This is not a minor thing. These guys are trying to generate a certain level of consent within the context of the public to get further and further involved in this conflict. And the media has been slavishly debasing itself for that very specific interest of state. You heard, what's his name, Stoltz the other day. Well, I mean, you got to fight for um, democracy or something, right? I mean, what are you basically saying? That your responsibility and your job to give the American public truth and reality is subordinate to your in um, your inherent, in your head anyway, responsibility to represent the interests of state, meaning if you need to lie in pursuit of state, that's perfectly okay? Is that what you all are saying? And that's what is basically being implicitly implied? So yeah, when these guys come out and give information, quote unquote, or Russia did this, quote unquote, Ukraine says this, quote unquote, 
More likely than not, they are lying in pursuit of this military engagement where they are waging a propaganda war that is running headlong into conflict with reality itself. It is astonishing. This president has gotten closer and closer and closer to this idea of being more involved in this conflict. And now we're getting reports that the U.S. is further involved than what the U.S. said it was. That um, 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 British forces are more involved than what you said it was. Yes, Russia is calling these people mercenaries. Fair enough. But let's be very clear. Are you shocked by that? Would you be shocked by that if you found that, yeah, there were people on the ground that were basically helping direct this particular conflict with a president that is getting more belligerent? Meaning in one sense, you had Senate basically passing a Lend-Lease bill. Lend-Lease bill was the thing that preceded us getting into the Second World War. That should have had a hair-on-fire point of view um, at the point where that information came out. That is a massive deal that we are getting that much more involved in that conflict. Biden seemed to be that much more deranged and be that much more stick to to this issue of Ukraine, even to the detriment of the United States. This is Biden. In fact, I just say it like this. From the perspective of the United States, the notion that we are getting further and further involved in this conflict, that we are sending more and more weapons in this conflict, and we're doing this stuff to the detriment of the people in this country, should be extremely and severely disconcerting. Biden has not been able to get anything basically accomplished here in the United States, and his focus is basically switched to Ukraine. And in his focus, being so stick to Ukraine, even to the detriment of Europe, even to the detriment of us, even to the detriment of the world, even if that means famine, even if that means supply shortages in various areas that exacerbate the issues that were taking place with COVID, it seems as if the president of the United States has decided that the American public matters less than what basically happens in a country that most of that public cannot even find. And fact of the matter is, it is not, it is not of existential importance that Ukraine is in our orbit, especially if that means we're going to take a massive, massive financial economic hit to try to force it to be so. This president is losing his mind. And at some point, somebody, whether it's people in his administration, whether it's the American public itself, needs to draw a red line from the activities that Biden is taking place because he is going to get us involved into a larger conflict. And one last point, let's be very clear. It is easy for people to say, well, they're not going to be that stupid. I hate to tell you this. Oftentimes, people get themselves in political situations where they can't extricate themselves from, where they go so far where the political winds and the political currents around them basically direct events that they no longer have this kind of individual will in that process in order to pull those events back from the brink. And my concern here is that the reality of events, the, you know, the good practical sense of events is no longer part of this conflict. Biden needs to be, somebody needs to draw a circle around him. I put it that way. He's dragging us closer into this conflict. And again, I question how much is Ukraine worth to the average American? And is it mean, if it means your inability to get as much food, your inability to purchase as much gas, you paying $5,000 more a year, again, how much is it actually and honestly worth to you to keep that country in your orbit? That is the question that the American public needs to answer. It doesn't matter what Saki thinks. It doesn't matter what Biden thinks. Yes, it matters in overt sense, but I'm trying to get to the point that from the standpoint of the American public, are you really 
wanting to take this much pain for a country that you have nothing to do with. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. We'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. Um, I am typically joined with my co-host, Ryan Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys are just so happy to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what I'm putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give me the like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Thousands of troops surrendered. Now, we have been telling you that Moripal is being surrounded and that basically Russia has been making steady progress in Moripal. And in this very specific situation yesterday, they were basically over a thousand troops. Um, Ukrainian troops that surrendered in Moripal, and this is including 162 officers. Now, the Russian defense ministry is saying this, but at this point, this is being pretty much reported, and Western sources even was going into the point that Moripal was falling, and not just falling, that the Azov battalion was very upset and felt that they were basically being betrayed and abandoned by the leadership. I suspect they were talking about Zelensky. So, despite the way that the West had been talking about this, at the end of the day, this is a massive defeat. And at the point where Maripal falls, most likely than not, those troops are going to be moved to other areas of the battlefield that is going to make this conflict that much more acute. To have a conversation about this and other issues, we're joined with the one and only Scott Ritter, the man that has been right all the way through this and has basically been silenced, or at the very least tried to be silenced by Twitter for being right on this. Scott Ritter is a former UN weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. And you can follow Scott on Twitter at RealScottRitter. Scott! The voice of reason and logic. What's going on? How you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, thanks. Just a correction. Uh, you can't follow me on Twitter. I've been permanently banned. So uh, that's right. But I thought you opened up a new Twitter account. I knew some real Scott Ritter got banned, but I thought you opened a new one. No, no, no. Uh, you, first of all, that, that would be a violation of the rules, and I don't violate the rules. Uh, the account that was opened up um, uh, at new Scott Ritter was a. Uh, a fake account, people misappropriating my photographs, my name. I see. And I see. That, that new account has been uh, shut down. I protested it, and a number of other people did protest. It's the stuff that that individual was posting, uh, it, it wasn't mine. It wasn't yours. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Man, okay, so silenced indeed. But, you know, the wild part about this, like I said, you've been right all the way through this conflict. I mean, shockingly so. Even on things where I was like, oh, man, I hope he's wrong on that. Not so much. You have been dead on. Um, so you are the person to go to, especially to talk about the military situation on the ground and what has basically been taking place. Um, so let's start there. 1,000 troops have basically surrendered. It seems that these guys are on their last leg. And there have been reports about bunkers and these type of things that are basically underground. But what it seems is if the Russia, that Russia has basically been getting that much closer, let's say Russia-backed troops, I believe Chechnyans, have basically been getting that much closer for Maripal to basically fall. What happens when Maripal falls? I mean, is this a situation where the troops basically go to other parts of the battlefield? And what is your assessment of these 1,000 troops basically surrendering? What's your take on this? Well, I mean, we, we know that Maripol was a major strategic of strategic importance to both Ukraine and Russia. Um, and so 
it was, you know, Russia has been assiduous in avoiding, um, you know, fights in urban areas. They are historically just brutal, brutal fights. I mean, you, you can go back to World War II and look at, the, you know, examples of history. Uh, when Germany was fighting the, the Russians in the Stalingrad, the, the Russians had dug into a factory very similar to Azov Steel, the factory area where the uh, where the Ukrainians are um, resisting right now. And the, the Germans brought in an elite <clears throat> combat engineer uh, uh, battalion, uh, several hundred men uh, who were highly trained in urban warfare, et cetera. And they sent them in, and uh, a day later, um, 80% were dead or wounded. Um, that's that's the, the reality of urban warfare. So the Russians have avoided it, but in order to... Uh, it, it, there's two things about Mariupol. One... Um, it secures the land bridge between Crimea and Russia proper. Uh, you can't have um, a land bridge if you have the major city uh, in the line of communication still controlled by Ukraine. So Mariupol has to be taken uh, from a strategic standpoint. Uh, two, Mariupol is the headquarters of the Azov Regiment. Uh, this is that uh, infamous neo-Nazi unit um, that has infected all of the Ukrainian military, but its headquarters is in Mariupol. Mariupol, of course, being on the Azov, the Sea of Azov. So the Azov Regiment is there, uh, and, and so the destruction of the Azov Regiment <laughs> is a major goal and objective of denazification. And so this is why Mariupol has been chosen uh, to be a battlefield. Now, uh, the the Russian troops that initially encircled Mariupol, these are the armored formations and stuff, uh, they by and large have been withdrawn. They're, they're not needed now. What's going on in the battle is it's an infantry battle uh, supported by some artillery, some tanks, some armored vehicles. But by and large, this is about uh, you know, lightly armed infantry um, going house to house and some of the most brutal, deadly fighting imaginable. Uh, the Ukrainians have prepared uh, Mariupol for this kind of fighting. They've, uh, they've gone underground, they've fortified, they've created reinforced tunnels that connect buildings underground. So this isn't just a battle taking place above ground. And normally that's brutal because if you're going into a building that has multiple floors, uh, that's floor by floor fighting. And if an enemy has prepared itself properly, uh, the enemy has, has built holes in the floor that they can transition from an upper floor to a lower floor. So as you fight your way up, they can come down, get behind you. It is just brutal, bloody war. The, the Ukrainians have made this even more so by going underground and connecting tunnels. So now as you fight in a building, the Ukrainians can come at you from below uh, with troops. So. The, you know, this is the kind of fighting the, the, the Russians, the Chechens, by the way, are, are taking the lead on this. Um, and it is just brutal. It's bloody. It's up close. It's as personal and intimate as it can get. And uh, that's what's going on. And the Russians are winning. <coughs> we know this. <coughs> the major Ukrainian military formation, besides the Azov Regiment, was the 36th Marine Brigade, an elite fighting force, some of the most highly trained uh, personnel in the Ukrainian military. United States Marine Corps had a very close relationship well, with these Ukrainian Marines. Uh, the, the American Marines have been training them and training with them uh, since 2015. Uh, many of the officers of this brigade have uh, served in the United States, going to American uh, Command and Staff College and Amphibious Warfare School and other uh, Marine Corps leadership uh, venues. 
They've uh, they've come over and observed Marines training. These are these are the best fighters the Ukrainians have, and they've been putting it up one heck of a fight. But at some point in time, even the bravest soldier uh, or Marine is confronted with the reality that resistance is futile. Generally, when you have no more ammunition, you have no more room to maneuver effectively. Uh, you have no command and control, and you're wounded now or piling up, and there's no effective medical care. Uh, the honorable military officer at a point when resistance is futile and continued resistance serves neither a strategic purpose, a tactical purpose, or uh, any legitimate military purpose surrenders. There's no dishonor in this. And these Ukrainian Marines um, confronted with the, the, the reality that they continued to fight, all that would happen is they would die and nothing would be achieved. The commander felt that the lives of his men and women, because there, I believe, there were 46 women included in this, um, needed to be preserved, and he did the honorable thing and surrendered. Um, not all Marines have surrendered. Some Marines have incorporated themselves with the Azov Regiment and are continuing to fight. But the, the, the surrender of the 36th Marine Brigade uh, represents the termination of the largest and most effective fighting force that had been in Mariupol. There will be continued mopping up of the Azov uh, regiment. Uh, again, this underground fighting in a factory, heavily reinforced, uh, dug-in troops is going to take a little bit of time. Uh, but as Vladimir Putin said the other night in his speech to the Russian people, our troops are fighting a very literate uh, com com combat. And that means by the book. And uh, the book says... We don't rush in. This isn't World War II where a human wave is going to come rushing in to overwhelm the enemy while taking great casualties. This is making sure that we that the Russians kill the enemy while preserving their own lives. And that's what's happening. At the end of each one of these tactical engagements, um, you're finding you know a dozen dead Ukrainian soldiers, maybe a few prisoners who had been wounded, and uh, the Chechens are suffering zero casualties or a handful of wounded. <coughs> but because they're going so slow and so methodically, um, you know, they're not getting themselves into an ambush. They're not running into a mined area. Uh, and it's just a bloody battle. Um, but the Russians are winning and they will win. I mean, it, there's literally no doubt that at the end of the day, uh, you know, Russia will control Mariupol. Yeah, it seems to be pretty straightforward at this point that these guys are um, falling apart, that this is falling, um, regardless of what U.S. media is kind of trying to cast this as. At this point, even they have come to the conclusion that this seems to be a lost cause. And look, that's a major defeat, right? Like you said, this is one of the most elite units that these guys have at their disposal. And they're basically being circled and annihilated. I want to read another piece study, and I want to get your take on this, because this is pretty explosive. And like I said, there's a strategic ambiguity around this that the Russians are basically calling these guys mercenaries. Right here. It says, Lee Figueroa, uh, senior international correspondent, George Mandelbrot said that he accompanied French volunteer fighters, two of whom had previously fought against ISIS, quote, I had to surprise, and so did they, to discover that they were able to enter the Ukrainian army. Well, it's the Americans who are in charge, said Mandelbrot. He continues, and that, that he, let me sit right here, adding that he and the volunteers, quote, almost got arrested, unquote, by the Americans who asserted they were in charge. The journalists then revealed that they were forced to sign a contract, quote, until the end of the war, unquote, quote, and who was in charge? It's the Americans. I saw it with my own eyes, said Mandelbrook, adding, I thought I was in international brigades and I found myself facing the Pentagon. Now, this is also reports coming from um, 
same French news organization that basically was saying right here. He also tweeted that British SAS units have been present in Ukraine since the beginning of the war, as did the American Deltas. Russia is apparently well aware of the, quote, secret war, unquote, being waged in Ukraine by foreign commandos who have been in the region since February. What is your take on that? If this is true, we're, we're, we're getting into some of the most sensitive aspects of um, American special operations um, warfare. And, um, you know, I'm loath to talk about it because at the end of the day, even though I feel Russia was justified in uh, moving into Ukraine, I'm an American and I'm not going to say anything that puts uh, American lives at risk, even if I don't agree with uh, what they're doing. So I'm only going to comment on what the what the reports are. Um, you know, it, it, we, we know from history that the uh, the Joint Special Operations uh, uh, Command, JSOC, uh, under which some Tier 1 units exist, including Delta Force, have carried out what's called advanced force operations. This has been reported on by the Stars and Stripes, which is a Department of Defense newspaper. So I'm not I'm not putting anything out there that, uh, you know, that hasn't already been put out. And I'm not confirming this. I'm simply saying that's what's been reported. Um and, you know, there are a number of things, reasons why they could be in there. I think the, the most uh, critical of which is um, facilitating the transfer of weaponry, um, making sure that there is a secure, what I call a rat line into uh, Ukraine. So this material uh, will have the least possible chances of being interdicted by Russia. Um, the other one is the collection of strategic intelligence uh, that can be passed on to the Ukrainians. Um, and then the third is uh, conducting um, basically an intelligence preparation of the battle space for any potential future um, operations by the United States. Uh, I do not believe these people would be involved in direct combat operations with Russia because um, that just is, is, is not what they're there to do. Uh, advanced force operations is a strategic reconnaissance uh, activity. And um, again, I can't say that that's happening. I don't know that that's happening. It's been reported that it's happening. Um, you know, but I, I will say that uh, when organizations like JSOC are involved in something, um, they, they are in control of that, meaning they aren't going to let outside players come in and detrimentally impact their mission. So it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me if this uh, level of control uh, goes down to um, you know the incorporation of foreign fighters into the foreign legion, uh, etc. Um, but again, I don't know. I can't say, uh, and it's a very risky thing. Um, look, Russia reads newspapers just like we do, and uh, I can guarantee you that the Russian uh, intelligence services, their special operations people, have read the same newspapers I have. Uh, they're aware of the same reporting, and. Um, you know, if 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 I were in their shoes, I would undertake uh, whatever measures necessary to um, to you know interfere and interdict and, uh, and 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 neutralize this this capability. Which means you have some of the most highly qualified Russian commandos uh, hunting down um, British and American special operations personnel who may be operating in Ukraine. This is an extraordinary, delicate, and sensitive. Uh, situation. Um, and it's one that even if there was a uh, force on force uh, contact, they would never admit it. These forces, uh, the United States won't admit it. Russia wouldn't even admit it. Or do you think they would admit it? I mean, to me, they're looking at strategic 
this kind of ambiguity stuff because they don't necessarily they get the ramifications of what it means if it's true. If you, if, if Russia were to detail this, uh, then you put the United States into a corner and you've created a political problem. And political problems often lead to irrational solutions. So if something like this happened, I believe it would be in Russia's special uh, best interest not to talk about it. Uh, you know, to quietly. Uh, inform the United States of what happened and uh, remind the United States that um, this probably shouldn't be happening. But uh, Russia isn't in the business of trying to embarrass America into getting involved in this conflict. And I, I do believe, for instance, if Russia publicized the deaths of you know, a dozen American commandos, um, that the United States, there, there would be bloodlust brought up in the United States and uh, I'm not saying we've lost that. I'm, not just, I'm just saying that it's in Russia's interest not to talk about this as well. So this is one of those secret conflicts that occurs in every war that nobody talks about. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the reports have been coming out. And like I said, Russia called the mercenaries, which is kind of their way of avoiding, like you said, the weirdness associated with the reports coming out about this. And, and you know, just to be clear, this is not me saying this is happening. It's not that. It's more so the reports are coming out of this. And unfortunately, as I hear these reports, it doesn't even sound like it's something that is off the, you know, insane. Like in Syria, for example, Obama kept saying there are no boots on the ground. He was lying. In Vietnam War, they, we sent all of these people, basically minders and everything else, and we got more ingratiated in that war as we got closer and closer. That's my concern here. And when Biden says stuff like, let's cue up this clip. This is Biden. And this is him being, I got to be honest, somewhat deranged. I mean, they've, they've, Senate has passed a Lend-Lease plan, which, again, should have had a far more hair-on-fire response from the press and the American public. It went by almost like, with, like nothing, despite the significance of that going back in the Second World War. And then you have the president saying this. Let's play the clip. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. In fact, we've already made progress since March inflation data was collected. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide in a half a world away. To help deal with this Putin price hike, I've authorized the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months from our strategic petroleum reserve. This is by far the largest release of our national reserve in history. It's a wartime bridge to increase oil supply as we work so with U.S. Producer, oil producers to ramp up their production this year. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices and food prices all over the world. The two largest grain producers in the world, China and, uh, excuse me, Ukraine and Russia, are not doing what they usually do, so everything's going up. We saw today's inflation data. 70% of the increase in prices in March came from Putin's price hike in gasoline. We need to address this challenge with an urgency to the demands. That's why I've called on Congress to move immediately to lower the cost of families' utility bills, prescription drug bills, and more while lowering the deficit to reduce inflationary pressures. And that's what we've done. We lowered the deficit by $300 billion so far. Let's stop right there. Biden is clearly unhinged in this. For one, the train station stuff, A, Bucha has never been investigated. And I don't buy the U.S claims on this, considering the U.S. is own up to the fact that it's been lying for the past several months. On the other point, the train station thing, again, this is, seems to be, I mean, based on reports that are coming out in the pictures, this missile is not even in Russian inventory. This seems to be a Ukrainian thing. And so it's like he is creating provocations based around stuff that hasn't been investigated, 
most likely is not true. And I have to wonder why he is doing this if the objective of this isn't to ramp up and create a justification for further involvement. And so he's now in a conversation that was supposed to be about inflation. It's basically trying to say, hey, 70% of the increase, yeah, that's because of Putin did so-and-so, completely ignoring the U.S.'s role in this. Not to mention, when Madeleine Albright sits there and says 500,000 kids dying is acceptable based on her policies, basically, yeah, I killed 500,000 kids, it's worth it. To turn around and say that Putin is committing genocide is astonishing. It just seems that he is dragging us closer into a conflict and that he is being more focused on the issue of Ukraine to the detriment of anything else. It seems like nothing else matters. This is the thing that he's basically put his attention on. I mean, this seems unhinged to me. I mean, what's your take on this? Well, first of all, we, we know that when um, politicians suffer <clears throat> domestic political problems that they're unable to resolve, they tend to um, look outside to create crises to divert attention of the public away from their failings as a political leader and, uh, you know, transfer the blame to a foreign power or foreign crisis. And so this is literally textbook um, you know, American politics. It, it happens all the time. And it's not just the Americans that do it. Everybody does it. They, you know, when things go bad at home, you try and find a, an outside uh, force that you can blame it on and, and hope that the people rally around you. I, I think the American people, by and large, are going to see through this. Um, they know who's responsible. We don't have stupid citizens about the economy. They know who's responsible. It's not Vladimir Putin. It's Joe Biden. But the problem is that Joe Biden's just not talking. He's doing. And uh, he's doing in a way that is uh, dangerously escalatory. Um, you know, the Russians are getting fed up with these uh, weapons coming in. Uh, you know, Americans, you know, we look at the numbers, you know, this many tanks, this many vehicles, this many helicopters, this many switchblade drones. Uh, the Russians look at it and say, this, this, this is hundreds more dead Russian soldiers. And uh, I can guarantee you that if, uh, if we know for a fact that when Iran facilitated the work of uh, Iraqi resistance forces and uh, carried out a campaign that killed you know, hundreds of Americans, um, we blamed an Iranian uh, leader and we killed him. I mean, that's what nations do when they blame outside parties for the deaths of their soldiers. Don't we in the United States understand that the same rage we felt whether it's misplaced or not, it's still rage. And it led to a military response to target whom we blamed, whether that person was responsible or not is irrelevant. I'm talking about the rage and I'm talking about the actions. The Russians feel the same rage and they are furious and they are going to do something. And what they're going to do is, to go, is going to be to the detriment of those resources coming in. And again, if we have Americans on the ground in Ukraine covertly facilitating this, they will die. And the American people need to understand that. And because now we have the potential of Americans dying in Ukraine, we now have the potential of Americans becoming angered by that and seeking to hold Russia accountable. And now we have two sides seeking to hold each other accountable for carrying out outrages against the other. That's called war. Uh, and we're we're teetering dangerously in that direction. Um, Biden needs to back off. I mean, if I were advising Biden, I would say, you know, unequivocally, 
Russia has won this war. There is nothing you can do to change that outcome. Nothing you are doing will change that outcome. All you can do is prolong this conflict and bring more harm to Russia. And that is not what we need right now. This is not going to be the new Afghanistan. This is the new Ukraine. It's over. And the fact is, we've ruined Ukraine. There could have been a negotiated settlement. Even after Russia went in, Russia was ready for a negotiated settlement. But because of the actions of the United States and NATO and the European Union in prolonging this conflict and the actions of the uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky in allowing himself to be used in this manner, Putin has said, declared, there will be no more negotiations. It's over. We're going to finish the job that we started, and we aren't going to stop until it's all done. And that means denazification. And denazification isn't just the destruction of the Azov Regiment in Mariupol or the destruction of the various other Nazi units on the battlefield. It means taking over Lvov and blowing up the statue of Stepan Bandera, a symbolic gesture very much alike to what we did in Nuremberg after we defeated Nazi Germany and blew up the giant swastikas. Why do I believe this is going to happen? Because Russia just did what we never did in Vietnam. They mobilized 60,000 reserves. An unheard of measure. A politically charged measure. One that if Putin wasn't confident in his status as the leader, if he felt there was any political vulnerability, he never would have done. Because when you mobilize reserves, you are mobilizing the civilian. Scott, we're going to have to close it here. Scott is a former U.N. weapons inspector and weapons of mass destruction whistleblower. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, and your only corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. Or with Jamal Thomas. Yeah, that's going to be a little bit weird for a while um, as we work that out. And by Monday, I would have somewhat of a new format in the way the show gets articulated. Look, as I said, when I first started the show, um, Fern is not going to be with us going forward. Um, this sucks. Clearly, I don't necessarily like it. I don't necessarily like the way things went down. I won't necessarily go into it because I can't necessarily go into it. This stuff is work product. Um, but nevertheless, the show goes on. Um, no. This is not me being a difficult personality um, to such a degree. It is almost becoming a punchline at this point in regards to our inability to keep other hosts. But look, the show goes on and we will move forward, whether that means it's just me or whether that's somebody else with us. At this point, I got to be honest, it's only relevant to me. Um, we will have show fault lines will still be fault lines and we will still make this work. But look, from my own point or from my own self, my own point of view. Yeah, Fern and I had a phenomenal chemistry. And I am going to dramatically miss having that ease of interaction as my opposition on the show. Um, so, yeah, she will be missed. And it's an unfortunate loss. Um, but it is what it is, right? Can't bleed all day. Gotta 
dust yourself off and keep it moving. So in this very specific case, we're going to keep it moving with headlines. I want to have a further conversation about the thing that took place when we were talking with Scott, because it really is. It's it's hard to get across the gravity and ramifications of what that conversation that Scott and I just had, um, the ramifications of the conversation. Think about it for the moment. Biden has assiduously avoided having any verbal standpoint of the U.S. getting involved in the conflict. And yet, one step after the next, he's dragged this country closer and closer to war. And not just dragged us closer and closer to war, went about lying to the public in order to create a context to make it look as if he is somehow a white hat in the situation, despite the level of radical culpability associated with the United States and NATO, especially the United States, considering the key primary mover shaker role that they basically occupy in the NATO sphere of influence. And so when we are hearing about potential troops on the ground that neither side wants to acknowledge because both sides all well understand the gravity of it. When Obama said, hey, there are no troops on the ground in Syria, he was lying about that. Even in the Vietnam War stuff, when we were getting ourselves closer and closer into that conflict initially, oh, we just have advisors. We We just have people helping and training. Is it beyond the pale of possibility? Think about it for yourself for the moment and think about the gravity of those events if that just so happens to be true. No, we are not taking the position, especially me, not taking the position that this is a flat back thing. I am taking the position, however, that there are reports that are coming out about this and I'm taking the position that, look, these political leaders need to think very clearly about what they are doing and the political situations that they are getting us wrapped into. Because again, I will make this point, there are situations that political leaders can get themselves into where their ability to back away from it becomes that much more difficult, if not entirely impossible. There's a gravity to this. And from the standpoint of Western media, they are infinitely culpable in creating this context that would screw this country over and getting us that much more involved into something like that. Like most things, I don't necessarily lean as a zero and one. Most of these things I tend to lean on what's more likely to be true. And I try to give you my reason and rationale for believing why something is more likely to be true. When the chemical weapon stuff came out, what did I say? From the standpoint of the Syrian war, we have evidence that the OPCW was being pushed in order to gin up information or to gin up this context that Bashar al-Assad, despite have taken the majority of the territory, was just a bad guy. You have people coming from the OPCW coming out saying, that is not our report. This stuff looked more staged. And you had Western media completely and entirely ignore that after running one story after the next about these strikes that took place and having a self-serving report to justify a weapon strike into Syria, despite the fact that the U.S. has nothing to do with that country, nor are we at war with that country, nor is there justification for us launching weapon strikes against the country. The point I'm making here is there's a historical context for the stuff in the way that we behaved in these conflicts that gets across what's more likely to be true or not. And we don't have independent investigations on the ground. When you do have a situation where it seems like, hey, that missile didn't seem to come from Russia, despite the fact that all of U.S. media basically reported it as such. Or we have all of these reports now. Oh, there is Marpol is falling and all of a sudden there's some kind of um, chemical thing there that nobody would own up to despite the fact that they would just put these allegations out. And you combine this with the fact that the U.S. owns up to the fact that they've been lying for months. This is a massive deal. Understand the gravity of events where your country is getting itself closer and closer into a conflict that it had and should have had nothing to do with. That you have massive amounts of people that were basically dying when everybody in that process understood the reality of it. 
Meaning, everybody who was in that process knew that Ukraine wasn't going to be part of NATO, and none of them would say it. Whether you want to call that, you know, this, oh, we don't want to give in, we don't want to seem like we're giving a concession, I don't care what you want to call it. The fact that all of them knew it and that this war still continues to go on when Ukraine has no chance of winning this war and these people continue to dump weapons into the hands of these various people in order to keep this conflict going entirely to create this new Afghanistan situation where we can bleed the Russians white. Is that really what you want your money going towards? Is that really what you want your billions of dollars going towards? Not to mention, is that really in the best interest of Ukraine, the country that we all of a sudden care about so greatly? I'll leave it. It's just... Look, the, the, the gravity of what is being stated cannot be underestimated. And nor can you trust that these people, A, aren't idiots, B, don't have a certain amount of hubris that is directing and influencing the political opinions that they are taking and the actions that they are taking. And yeah, having a situation where he has completely failed monstrously on a domestic front and has now wrapped himself into this idea of Ukraine, like this is the key thing that America should deal with. We're paying $5,000 more a year, give or take, and this is only getting worse. And we're digging the ditch further as opposed to having sensitive or competent, practical human beings in the administration saying, hey, this is going too far. This is going too far. How far and how much are you willing to pay to drag and to maintain Ukraine being into the U.S. orbit? And the fact that media is willing to go along with this and position this country into this notion of war and to base any notion of their philosophical responsibility to give truth to the American public to prevent stuff just like this, which is the entire point of media. But no, that's not what our media is going to do. Our media is going to write hit pieces on us as we give you the actual reality of events that this show has basically been doing while simultaneously getting the public into a context that they are somehow the white hats in this situation. I'm sorry, you're not. At best, this is far more great, and this is far more complicated than the stupid, childish narrative that you've been given in this country. And yeah, you're being radically manipulated to get you into a conflict that you do not, should not, under any circumstances, want to get further involved in. Let's get into headlines. In the news, Greg Abbott backtracked on his get-tough-border approach on Wednesday, announcing during a news conference in Laredo, Texas, that the Lone Star State would cease its controversial inspection of cargo trucks at the southern U.S. border with Mexico. Abbott claimed that the move came because he and Nuevo Leon Governor Samuel Alejandro Garcia Zaptulva signed a memorandum agreeing to enhance border security on Mexico's side of the border. Okay. In international news, a fire on board a Russian missile cruiser, Osava, has been contained and the risk of further detonation or detonations of ammunitions on board has been averted, the Russian Defense Ministry stated. The ship maintains its buoyancy and attempts are being made to tug it to a port for repairs, the ministry said. The cause of the initial fire, which prompted a detonation of ammunitions on board that severely damaged the ship is still being investigated, the Defense Ministry noted. It further elaborated that the main missile ammunition stock was not affected by the incident. The ship's crew, in turn, has been safely evacuated to nearby ships of the Russian Black Fleet. The ministry has added. The UK will, set, will send asylum seekers to offshore processing centers in the eastern African nation of Rwanda as part of the government's new plan to tackle soaring numbers of illegal immigrants being trafficked across the English Channel from the mainland Europe. The blueprint is due to be unveiled by Prime Minister Boris Johnson later on Thursday before Home Secretary Priti Patel signs a five-year agreement for migration and economic development partnership 
in Rwanda's capital, Kagigal, Kigali. In its capital, Kigali. It sounds a lot like Trump. It sounds very much like Trump. And like I said, he was taking pretty much hit from this on Twitter. But again, Twitter is not indicative of the UK. And so how they take it, who knows? We'll be paying attention. In Earth and Science News, researchers identified the first known interstellar meteor that hit Earth some eight years ago. CNN reported detailing new developments in the discovery in recent years. It is indeed an uncommon occurrence in our solar system since the interstellar media is a space rock that originates from beyond our solar system. According to the report, Amir Siraj, who recognized the item as an interstellar media in 2019 article he co-authored as an undergraduate at Harvard University, was taken aback by the discovery. Siraj was working with Harvard University Professor of Science Abraham Loeb, um, Loeb, Avi Loeb, basically, on his study of Amamuamua, the first known interstellar object discovered in our solar system in 2017. I discussed this back at the end of the other headline segment. If you want to go back and get a little bit more information on Amamuamua and this kind of conversation that Professor Avi Loeb was having on it. We've had Avi Loeb on several times, and this was one of his discussions. He actually wrote the book on it. Um, so it is a very interesting discussion on Oumuamua. And there are all sorts of questions around whether or not that object is, let's say, just space rock or whether that object is something else from some other civilization, which is Avi Loeb's contention or at the very least his hypothesis. Very interesting stuff, but definitely check it out. In business news, Tesla billionaire, billionaire Elon Musk has made its best and final offer to buy Twitter and turn the company private in an SEC filing this morning. Musk is offering $54.20, $54.20 per share at 54% premium over the day he bought a 9% stake in the company. The proposal was de- um, delivered in a letter to Twitter on April 13th. Musk says that Twitter needs to go private to go through the changes that needed to be made. Musk also said, quote, I would need to reconsider my position as shareholder, unquote, if the offer is not accepted. He's basically trying to buy Twitter. Put that in perspective. He's trying to buy Twitter. That is amazing. And honestly, I kind of hope he does it. Can't get any worse than what it is now, right? In crazy news story, Senator Ted Cruz recently refused to comment on whether or not he would perform oral sex to end world hunger. Yes, he would not answer that question. Cruz and his co-hosts, along with special guest Liz Wheeler, were discussing the Supreme Court's confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman to be nominated to such a post, when a student named Evan went to the microphone in the audience and set a difficult moral ethical dilemma. Quote, assuming it would end global hunger, would you fellatiate another man? Unquote. He inquired as the audience erupted into laughter. In no moment, the senator's co-host started answering the question. In one moment, the senator's co-host started answering the question. Quote, I actually think it is better. Yale answers this. Unquote. Cruz said, as Michael Knowles, a Yale graduate, claimed that he had the answer to the young man's dilemma, Knowles later changed his Twitter handle, quote, quite, quote, Michael Knowles, world hunger perpetrator, unquote. Um, the answer has to be yes. I'm sorry, the answer has to be yes. I get it's a difficult question. I get it's a moral dilemma. I get all of that. Fair enough. I get it's even embarrassing to kind of contemplate. You may even say, I do not want to deal with, um, hypothetical questions. Fair enough. You can say all that. But at the end of the day, how many people are in desperate hunger? What is that number? And if that number is over a billion, which it may very well be, what is the level of desperation of that hunger? And what does it mean for an individual to be in hunger? What does it mean for a person to suffer as such? And are you willing 
to give over, let's say, that aspect of yourself in order to eliminate this world problem. Let's ask this a different way. If you could kill yourself and end world violence, would you do it? Or if you could starve to death in order to end world hunger, would you do it? Now, of course, the would you do it thing is pretty difficult, right? Because at that point, that's not you basically doing it. That's you saying, okay, and somebody basically forcibly starving you to death. Either way, you get my point. Some of these things are kind of dilemmas in regards to self versus what you're willing to give for self in order for a larger objective to be accomplished, especially an objective that is pretty disastrous. If it meant eliminating all wars and all of those people dying of famines, are you willing to give your life? Well, in this case, they're not asking him to give his life. They're asking him to basically give another man um, oral sex. And in doing so, would you do it? Ted Cruz, apparently not wanting to answer that question, but calling the guy a perpetrator of world hunger because the guy doesn't want to give oral sex is just hilarious. That story is awesome. That story is awesome. It's a Black Mirror episode. There's a Black Mirror episode where something like that happens, where the guy is basically put into position as prime minister of the UK. They capture the queen's, I believe, daughter, and they're holding her hostage. And they said, you need to have sex with a pig in order for us to let her go. And if you don't have sex with that pig as prime minister of the UK, we will kill her. Now, the prime minister is putting a political dilemma at this point of, okay, what do I do? Well, the press and the public initially is like, hey, we're supporting the prime minister. But when the prime minister tries to rescue her in this kind of military attempt that goes poorly, then the public at that point turns against the prime minister, in which case the prime minister is advised, you need to have sex with that pig. You need to... You need to give that pig the best that that pig has ever gotten, ever. And, by the way, this had to be done on live, which means the prime minister had to do this live. The cameras had to be live. There could be no breaks. Everybody had to watch it, and the entire UK watched as the prime minister gave that pig the business. And initially, when people were, like, laughing, they thought it was funny and everything else, at the point where they're seeing the prime minister grunting, and they hear the... You're hearing that? Well, that's not sexy. That's not even funny at that point. And you had these people who was like, oh, this is not something we need to see. This is pretty bad. Now, the rub is that the princess had been released early, that the prime minister did that before the princess, I'm sorry, after the princess was released, but the prime minister didn't know that. And come to find out that the princess was in no harm at all, that this was basically a trolling done by the people who basically had kept the princess for a short amount of time and then released her. The prime minister was never told this by his representative, who basically kept that a secret because he didn't think that he could deal with the fact that he basically had sex with a pig on national television when the queen or the princess was not actually in any danger. Yeah, that sounds like a Black Mirror episode that um, Ted Cruz is being presented with. But I suppose Ted Cruz would prefer world hunger. In the holiday news, we have cake and cunnilingus today. Man, let's just pile on. And National Pecan Day, we have National Ex-Spouses Day right here. Tamil New Year, we have National Dolphin Day. We also have this day in history in 1981, America's first space shuttle, Columbia, returns to Earth. In 1961, the first live broadcast is televised from the Soviet Union. In 1912, the passenger liner Titanic, deemed unsinkable, unsinkable, strikes an iceberg on her first voyage and sinks. The ship will go under the next day with a loss of 1,500 lives. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Let's do this. Let's take a break first, and then we'll come back and we'll take calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Back in a moment. 
lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. Um, and we have callers. We have callers. So let's do this. Let's go to our first caller. We have David. David from North uh, New York City. David, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Hi, fine, thanks. Uh, uh, I, I want to agree with one of your earlier points and, and add something. Uh, as the war in Ukraine looks more and more hopeless from the Ukrainian point of view, uh, Biden is, does come across more and more deranged. And, mm-hmm. And it appears, it definitely appears to be dragging us closer to war. To cover for him, his spokespeople, his spokespeople are, are trying to downplay it by saying, well, it's just a, a, normal, a, a human emotional reaction. But is that what we want for a president who, who is uh, succumb to a human emotional reaction and, and possibly drag us right into a war because of it? Especially now. I mean, like, because think about it for the moment. Biden is going on the world stage and he's saying this stuff. This is not him talking to his wife as he eats applesauce and as she pets him on the head. That's not this. This is a president of the United States that has the ability to send billions of dollars in weapons, that has his hand and finger on the nuclear button, and is basically dragging us into a conflict with another nuclear-powered nation. This is astonishing. I want to contrast that with, with something else. Uh, there's, I've heard widespread commentary in the past that if Trump were president, this would never have happened. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure about that, because let's look at Trump's own words from two weeks ago. Uh, you can Google it to find out, and it was not heavily reported, but, but it's it definitely something he said. He said that he would threaten Russia with nuclear attack via, via submarines close to the Russian border. He said that two weeks ago. That, that's even more unhinged. And, and so uh, we're, we're you know, in a rock and hard place here. We don't have a, any kind of leader that, can, 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 uh, that can't possibly drag us directly into a war. And Trump's, Trump's words are worse. I mean, it's almost lunacy what he said. Trump's words are worse. And I suspect that part... Let me ask you this. If Trump was president, and I keep hitting my head on this because I don't know the answer to it, and I think that's what this basically hinges on, right? If Trump was president, would the forces that were in that office be able to drag him into a situation where he has no ability to make a deal with Russia in a sense? Meaning, think of what he did with Kim Jong-un. Trump started off belligerent. He started calling him rocket man. He went into the, U, the security thing, the, the UN, and was basically making all of these assertions as he attacked um, Kim Jong-un. But ultimately, Trump ended up in this kind of weird orbit of, okay, yeah, let's make a deal. Because in his head, the deal was the thing that mattered most. I'm a dealer. I'm a wheeler and dealer. I'm the guy that can make peace in the situation. And he did seem less, let's say, less, less um, likely to end up in these kind of military conflicts, despite the way he was acting with the Rhine and the way he was acting with Venezuela. So fair enough. I guess the catch is, is it a situation that Trump's bombasticness is this kind of beginning way in the way he deals with this stuff? And is this a situation where he's saying this just because he's trying to get ahead of any notion of Biden? Meaning, whatever Biden does, he wants to go further. And look, I agree with you, right? Neither one of these guys are. The race, the race to see who's the greater warmonger. Right, exactly. And, and honestly, I think it's an honest question in regards to, look, neither one of these guys are rap tight to me. Both of these people should be nowhere near the presidency. The fact that Trump would say something like that is in and of itself problematic, considering the fact that he's basically considering running for office and he was the previous last president. So agreed with you thousand percent that is unhinged to a, a radical degree. From the standpoint of Biden, though, he is currently president. And fact of the matter is, regardless of the words and everything else, he is sending military aid. He is sending weaponry. 
And honestly, if the reports are true that there are personnel, British and U.S. personnel, and that that is astonishing bad. Like the ramifications of that cannot be understated at all. And so, look, I agree with you on this. This is a dramatically bad situation that we are inching ourselves closer and closer into. And we seem to have a deranged, dementia-riddled president that doesn't seem to get the full gravity of these events and is allowing a certain degree of hubris in his mind to get him to this mindset of, yeah, I'm not going to back down. I'm I'm America. We don't have to back down. We get to dictate terms to the rest of the world. And I hate to tell him this. I think he's going to find out the hard way that there is a reality to that, that he's going to run headlong into that the influence and the leverage that we had and exerted back in 2000 is not the world that we have at our current disposal. Uh, um, David, thank you, man. I appreciate this. Anything else you wanted to add before we um, go away? That's good. I I appreciate you taking my call. Thanks again. No, I totally appreciate it. Look, what David is saying here is correct. I mean, you have a president of the United States that's just saying some out there stuff. And keep in mind, when Biden gave his speech recently, that speech was supposed to be about inflation. Inflation. We're going to have Mark Frost on to kind of have a conversation about the elements of inflation. But it needs to be understood what we are encountering in this country from that standpoint of either inflation, what this is going to mean for gas costs, what this is going to mean for costs across the board. Because the moment that you have issues associated with gas, you basically have an issue associated with everything else. And let's also be clear. Oftentimes, as Mark Frost has indicated, that the numbers that they use for inflation are just cherry-picked. Even unemployment. When they give you, oh, we have 1.2% unemployment. Look how successful we are. You know how they make those numbers? Ultimately, they call people and ask them, are you working? And then they ask, do you want to work? And based on a poll, based on a poll, they come away with a farcical number in regards to whether or not there's an unemployment rate. The unemployment in, let's say, Europe and everything else, they use different metrics in order to come up with a number. The number seems to be more honest. Well, with the inflation thing, it's something similar. These numbers are farcical. They're somewhat cherry-picked in order to give you this kind of overarching number of an inflation figure that is worse than or better than what it actually is in practice, especially if you're one of those Americans, the 60, 70% of people that don't have $600 in the bank in case there's an emergency. But those people are going to have to pay a tax because of Joe Biden's and the United States foreign escapades. And in this very specific situation, Joe Biden himself, keep in mind, Joe Biden was the viceroy of Ukraine. Joe Biden was the vice president when Ukraine was knocked over in 2014. It was the Biden, uh, Biden who basically was the one who was threatening the prosecutor and all of this other stuff, who lied, saying he didn't know what his son was doing in Ukraine, despite the fact that both of these guys apparently were talking about this stuff, looking at the emails and everything else that was being exchanged between the two. And yeah, at the point where Newland was trying to choose who was going to be in charge of that government and quote unquote midwife this thing. Yeah, we're implicated. We're completely culpable in the events that basically took place when that country was knocked over. And to make it even worse, to not be willing to come to some agreement in order to prevent a mass failure of Western policy going forward. And now, to get historical about the process, when it seems that this is not going according to plan, he is not getting what he wanted in this process, and Ukraine will lose this conflict. The question is whether Biden is okay with Ukraine using the conflict or whether he is going to believe that Ukraine is so existential which is just, again, gets across the level of dementia and ridiculousness associated with the policies that Biden and the European Union has been going with in this conflict and the willingness that they're, um, to allow their populations to suffer, to suffer as a result of their 
global ambitions, of them looking at the world as this geopolitical chessboard. Well, yeah, we're going to gobble up these nations. And yeah, we're going to knock over this nation on the border. And yeah, after that, we're going to put in this kind of rabidly Russophobic government that is going to open up a conflict on the Russian speakers in the East. And then we're going to act as if the Russian speakers aren't Ukrainians. That's what we're going to do. Because implicit in all of this is that there's something lesser about the people who decided that they didn't want to be a part of a government that was radically against their own interests and their own existence in and of itself. But no, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to bring that up. We don't even want to bring up the fact that they're neo-Nazis and that the people who basically pulled away in those different districts in the Donbass Republic, that those people had real issues associated with the government collapsing. We don't even want to touch that. The point I'm making here is they've talked about this story in such a way to give a jaded perspective. And instead of trying to give people real, legitimate, contextual information of their world, so whichever way they basically break, whether they say, hey, I think Russia did have security concerns and that they're acting um, legitimately, or they say, yes, I get that they had security concerns, but that wasn't enough of a reason. At the very least, they would understand it contextually. So as an, an unhinged, deranged president comes out and says stuff like, Genocide is being committed. No investigation has taken place. Just making it up. Well, they come out and admit these guys have been lying for months on end, and the media has been carrying those lies. When that stuff comes out, the American public should be able to know that and to understand, hey, I am uncomfortable with you being deranged. I am uncomfortable with you not being able to control your feelings on the world stage as you scream out that the president of the other country should be deposed. The country should be, should be able to assess the information that it has provided and to come away and say, you know what? Hey, I may agree with you on some of this stuff, but I don't want our country being positioned in this way where we are getting closer and closer to a larger conflict while you continuously and flagrantly not just ignore the real world issues or the countries or the issues that are affecting the country in and of itself from an economic standpoint, but you make it worse. You make it worse. And then try to use propaganda to absolve yourself of blame and culpability, despite the fact that these were actions that were taken, conscious actions that were taken one after the next, year after year. Each and every person full well understood that the uh, um, NATO expanding was a red line. All of them knew it. They knew it decades ago. And yet, at no point did it stop them from expanding it. At no point that even this basic understanding of, hey, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were greatly bothered by those missiles being targeted and aimed at the United States. None of those people who are out there now screaming, Ukraine is an independent nation and can do whatever it wanted. None of them thought that the way about Cuba. None of them looked at Cuba and said Cuba is an independent nation if it wants to get weapons from the Soviet Union and if it wants to aim those at the United States. What's the big deal? It's an independent nation, right? But now all of a sudden, amnesia. None of these people all of a sudden remember that. And with the media, that is a philosophical responsibility to give a contextual view of their world, especially in a democracy. Instead, what they've done was to try to eliminate alternate points of view. First point. And on top of that, carry state full well, absolute, complete, flat, fat, schoolboy level state propaganda and has done so triumphantly. It is not your job to do that. And in fact, when your country is positioned in a sense or more so positioned in a sense of a war and is on a clear wartime footing and is clearly getting closer and closer to the brink. Your job is not to make that worse. 
Your job is not to egg that on. Your job is not to try to provoke a larger conflict. Your job is to basically be honest, especially in that situation. That way it becomes that much more relevant and that much more necessary to be honest. You are dragging us into something that we don't want to be in. Full stop. And from the standpoint of any random American that is going to have to pay additional costs, additional prices, and all of that stuff, you are getting them into a situation that will be dramatically worse, not just from the standpoint of the way this country is positioned, not even from the standpoint of the pressure that is going to be put on the U.S. financial system because of the moves that we've been taking weaponizing the dollar in a way that those other countries are going to respond to it, even just in the domestic sense. Fuel, oil, 70% inflation. Gas, 48% inflation. Used cars, 35% inflation. Hotels, 29% inflation. Airfare, 24% inflation. Utility gas, 22% inflation. Bacon, 18% inflation. Oranges, 18% inflation. Furniture, 16% inflation. Beef, 16% inflation. New car, 13% inflation. Chicken, 13% inflation. Milk, 13% inflation. Appliances, 12% inflation. Fish, 11% inflation. Eggs, 11% inflation. Coffee, 11% inflation. Food at home, 10% inflation. Rent, 4.5% inflation. When I ask you, how much is Ukraine worth? This is what I'm asking you. Jen Psaki says we got to pay for our values. Again, it's not Psaki that has an issue paying for her values. She is monstrously well-paid. For her to be the propagandist-in-chief that she is, she is monstrously well-paid. What about you? What about the average American? 50% of the American population is either poor or barely making ends meet. 70% is basically in um, what they consider to be baking, barely making ends meet, basically on a hamster wheel. Meaning in a country that has been radically insecure for years, large part, majority of the country, for years, you've just added this extra level of economic stress for your own geopolitical machinations. We are feeling the effects of that. And then you try to use propaganda to absolve the culpability associated with it. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. If Biden admits that much of this inflation is being caused by Putin invading Ukraine, then if I am right that this is a provocation that the U.S. was infinitely culpable in, that NATO and those stupid idiots in the vassal states of Europe were infinitely culpable in going along with, then I am right in my assertion that the U.S. on some level is culpable in these costs that are being um, affected, that is affecting us. And if I am indeed right on that, which I am completely right on that point, then Biden can't say that this is a situation that this belongs to somebody else. These were choices that we made to provoke a conflict. And I think all of us agree that this invasion on some level is creating increases in costs. What I am making the point of is that the provocation didn't have to take place considering that for the last 40 years, all of them understood what it meant for them to expand NATO. All of them understood the level of provocation, the historical level of provocation to knock over the government of Ukraine in that process. And yet here we are. Everybody understood it. And yet everybody went through with it nonetheless. You can't turn around after that and say, it's all the other guy's fault. We were blameless and we were white hats. Nothing could be further from the truth. And you can write it as much as you want. You can lie about it all that you want. The reality of events is this is a far more complicated case than the way they're articulating it. And yes, in the same way that the U.S. had security concerns with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we found it completely and entirely unacceptable 
for those missiles to be aimed at us that close to our shores. Well, yeah, the same thing applies from the standpoint of Russia and its security concerns about NATO expanding to its borders, knocking over a country and putting in a radically Russophobic government in charge, not to mention the attack on the Russian speakers. Be honest. That's what I'm saying. From the standpoint of media, be honest. No, I don't expect it to happen. Yes, I'm still saying be honest. Have a conversation with this. We're going to come back. We're going to be talking to Mark Frost, but let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm typically joined with my co-host, Vern Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to get to our next guest because this is going to be a very interesting conversation. And like I said, we are going to be taking calls at 945. So definitely, if you're listening to the show, you can hit us at 202-521-1320. But let's get to our guest, Mark Frost. Mark Frost is an uh, Oh, here we are. I'm sorry, Mark. Actually ran into an issue. Here we are. Mark Frost is an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Schubertinarian, recovering libertarian. Mark, he's our um, information guy on all things economic. How you doing this morning, Mark? You doing okay? I'm doing pretty good. I'm impressed. You're starting to sound a lot like me on inflation now. Oh, I, am I? Well, it's aggravating on so many levels. I Look, I grew up in a household that did not make ends meet, that perpetually didn't make ends meet. And with a single parent, and that honestly, if you know you get a bill, well, that's an emergency, right? It's like if you got um, an extra, um, you know, a parking ticket, can't pay that. That's too much. And yeah, it doesn't sound like much, but at the end of the day, if you're just barely making ends meet, anything, any extra additional expense is catastrophic. And now you have the situation where, based on pure geopolicy that the West decided to take that you have this stuff going through the roof. And it's not even a situation where they say this is purely from COVID. They accept that the majority of the stuff is coming directly from the provocations that have been taking place in Europe, meaning this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what they've just tried to say is, this is totally Putin's fault. And I'm like, get out of here. All of you guys were taking certain actions um, that lead us to this point. And yeah, I just go through the numbers again. Fuel, 70% um, inflation. Gas, 48% inflation. You, cars, 35% inflation. Hotels, 29%. Airfare, 24%. Utility, gas, 22%. Bacon, 18%. Oranges, 18%. Furniture, 16%. Beef, 16%. New cars, 13%. Chicken, 13%. Milk, 13%. Appliances, 13%. Fish, 11%. Eggs, 11%. Coffee, 11%. Food at home, 10%. This is a tax that these people are going to have to pay on all of these items that they basically use on a daily basis that they basically use for years. And now all of this stuff is going to go up dramatically. And do you want to know something I doubt most of the listeners even know? Uh, all those things you mentioned that have to do with food aren't even in the basket of weighted goods that they use to compute the CPI. Really? Because food, yeah, food is excluded because it has market fluctuations that are volatile every day. So they say, well, food generally is uh, transitory inflation. It, it comes, it goes. It's not a long-term thing. It's not a function of monetary policy. So it's ignored by the government. 
Well, it's exactly what you just said. I came from a home like that, too. If you're living on fried bologna and the price of bologna goes up 30 percent, it doesn't matter if the government says the inflation rate's 10 percent to you and your or more said your parents that have to buy that bologna so you can fry it. You know, that is something that takes money off of that budget, especially if people are living paycheck to paycheck. And that's why inflation is called a tax by most political economists, because it is a tax and it's a regressive tax and it taxes the very people least able to withstand it. So true. So true. I, I, man, I'm shocked. That is astonishing. I mean, I think people need to like reconcile that, right? That the number that they came up with, the 8.5% number that all of them knew was going to be catastrophically high, is not really indicative of how high it is. Because according, like, because your point is they're not even including the things that people use on a daily basis in order to come up with that number. Even more so, gas is considered an outlier because it's so high. You know, it's what is it, 60% in some areas. So yeah. uh, gas is considered an outlier. So, you, so they statistically adjust it down so it's not an outlier anymore. Well, okay, that's great if you make 300000 a year. If you make 30000 a year and you got three kids, uh, I've been talking about this on this show for, what, two years. I mean, inflation is more severe the lower your income is because some things you have to buy. And a lot of the things you have to buy, other than fuel, aren't even on the CPI list that's going into calculating your, your cost of living increase and all that kind of stuff. And so... You know, it just shows again how even the metrics that we use to measure these things are just tone deaf. They're, they're, they're not things that for regular normal people make any sense. And it's even a form of gaslighting because exactly what you, that little scenario you told about when you were a kid, your parents, you know, they didn't care what the CPI was if, if they went to the store and they could buy 40% of what they could a year ago. I mean... It doesn't matter what the official number is. They're, they're, they're experiencing it for themselves, and they understand whatever it is, it's a lot more than 10%. And that's what we have right now. And the government lies. I mean, it's not really lying. It's, it's, it's torturing the data and having a paradigm, and everybody's part of it. But the system itself is exceptionally misleading. And if you're not an economist, most people just don't know these things. That's so unfortunate, Mark. I mean, because people are going to take a serious hit for this. And of course, this is going to lead the Fed to basically increase rates. And then the catch becomes, okay, well, how fast are they going to increase rates, especially seeing numbers like this? I mean, considering that a lot of this stuff is taking place externally or because of external events, what effect or what powers would the Federal Reserve have to even try to keep this number down to 2%? Well, yeah, I mean, the only power that they have is the power to tighten up credit. Because money, in one word, money is credit. Money is a liability. So. Uh, they can tighten up credit. And, but, but again, it's just like back in the pandemic. The people that were connected and had, had uh, very good banking relationships already, they got their PPP money. It's the little ma-pa place that, that w was left out in the rain. And, you know, kind of at parties right now, what kind of, kind of the economist thing that goes on at parties, they'll say, you know, isn't it horrible what's going on in, in Ukraine? And it's horrible that all, this, uh, all, these, all these economic problems and supply chain problems are because of Ukraine. And it enrages me because I talked to, it, it reminds me of what people say happened to us uh, because of Osama bin Laden. 
didn't pass the Patriot Act because of Osama bin Laden. He didn't pass that. We chose our reaction to 9/11, and I'm going to, and I'll argue till I turn blue in the face. Our abatement of terror, our abatement of terrorism, was more costly and more oppressive and more draconian than the than the than the terrorism. Mm-hmm. And it, it's something that Americans tend to do. We overabate. We get scared. And you know, when when you when you wake up in the morning and overnight, every single major media outlet is saying the same thing, even the channels that used to, that traditionally hate each other and, and their rivals, they were saying the same thing. It was as if a memo went out uh, to everyone and said, from this point on, we're going to talk about this. So Ukraine isn't big enough. To be blunt, Ukraine's entire GDP is meaningless with respect to the world economy. What isn't meaningless with respect to the world economy is Russia's energy and the United States' macroeconomic uh, basis. So we're having policies that are a reaction to Ukraine, and we're making the supply chain problems worse. And this is an effort that, in my opinion, is being waged, again, on the backs of the poor. Because what it's doing by us putting all of these shocks into the energy markets, we're, we're ensuring that inflation is, is going to stay with us and it's going to continue to get worse because we not only have a monetary component because we put a bunch of money, but we also have structural problems right now because we've, we've purposely damaged our supply chain in an attempt to fight this war with Russia. And that's what it is, is a war. I mean, these are acts of war. When you start embargoing countries, that's an act of war. It just is. And I find it dangerous. I find the rhetoric ridiculous. And it's not, you know, I have a little bit different view on it. And, and I, I put it in, the, in a little note to you. I, I've been to Russia. I like the Russian people. I travel all over the country. I've done some business there. I have nothing against Russia. But my, I don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I help Russia? I don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, how can I help Vladimir Putin? I don't care about Putin. And for that matter, I don't really care about Russia. What I do care about is my own country. And we should not pursue policies that, that eat our own muscle. Yes. There are a lot of countries we do business with in the world that do horrible things by our, by our measurements. The Uyghurs in China... Look, uh, you know, uh, look at Saudi Arabia. And this administration has managed to offend the Arabs, to offend the Chinese. They've managed to offend everyone without accomplishing anything. And meanwhile, we have people who are genuinely worried on that scenario you, that you articulated so well earlier if you're growing up in a, in, a, in a home that has very limited disposable income, every price jump is a tax. And these poli- we would, if, if we want to change the policy in Russia, just think about it in your own psychology. If I want you to do something that I want you to do, Jamal, I can't come up to you and slap you in the face and say, do what I say. Right, right. It's probably not going to sustain it very long. I can't insult you and I can't embarrass you to the point that it that not only now are we never going to be friends, 
there's there's contempt and hatred, and distrust. Yeah, and there's no way to save face in the conf- yeah in the back and forth. Please continue. Prove, uh, and it isn't a matter whether you approve of what's going on in Ukraine or not. I did not approve of what went on in Iraq. I did not think we should have unilaterally invaded Iraq. We were a sovereign country, right? Uh, I thought it was a mistake to do that. And I believe, uh, and my argument was, my prediction was that the people would probably be better under Saddam Hussein than they're going to be better under anarchy. Or even worse, corrupt U.S. exported, not even capitalism, just whatever that thing is, we export to countries after we take them over. And, uh, and, and that's what's going on in Ukraine. We're, we're sort of involved. We're not involved. It looks like it, everybody wants it to escalate. They, they want to ship offensive weapons, uh, that sort of a thing. And all it is doing is it's pouring gas on a fire that probably negotiation would fix this problem now. But think about it. If I was Ukraine, would I want, to, would I want peace right now? No. I got the mainstream media on my side. I have, uh, I have all of this uh, political will, so I would not want to negotiate. I would, want, uh, I would continue to want to get more and more weapons from the West. So we're actually inhibiting, from a game theory perspective, we're inhibiting the ability of the parties to get into a room and work this out. But see, that's the rub, Mark. It, this isn't... Like in economics, in an economic sense, that would make sense. Meaning, if people were looking at this and saying, "Okay, what does what does a rational actor do?" Well, rational action is, is purely dependent upon what you're trying to accomplish, right? Like, meaning the good or bad, or the right or wrong, it, in any particular issue has everything to do. Meaning, it's not an absolute; it's entirely dependent upon what you're trying to accomplish. And in their very specific situation, peace, good sense, pragmatism, none of that stuff is what they're trying to accomplish. All of this stuff seems to be more politically governed. Meaning it seems that their objective in this is not, okay, how can we bring these two sides together to keep them from fighting? Fact of the matter is if we wanted to do that, this war would have never taken place. Everybody basically agreed with the main premise that Russia put out, Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO. None of them would say it. And so this notion of like good sense, and that, that's off the table. These guys seem to have something they want to accomplish. And if that means accomplishing it to the last dead Ukrainian, that seems to be an acceptable premise that they're going by. And even if that means, by the way, adversely affecting the um, domestic centers of NATO countries, meaning in Europe or the United States again. In their heads, they seem that this seems to be an acceptable um, giveaway. It's, it's astonishing. I agree with you. Good sense. If it tried to prevail, and good sense in this very specific sense meant, how do we keep these parties from becoming belligerents? That wasn't on the table. That wasn't on the table. And it still doesn't seem to be on the table, considering Biden has talked about sending additional weapons. And these guys are talking about opening up a Lend-Lease program with Ukraine, which anybody who's a history of World War II, that should raise eyebrows, to put it mildly. That should raise eyebrows. I mean, I guess my thing is, if this has gotten into be a political fight at this point where it's a war of attrition, what should we expect as the next escalatory moves to this? I mean, Biden is sending more weapons. Both of these guys are passing sanctions. Putin has said gas need to be paid in rubles, and they haven't necessarily forced that yet. But I suppose if things continue at some point, that's going to come to fruition. I mean, what should we expect going forward, Mark? Well, what I don't understand, let's just say the Biden administration policy on Ukraine is the morally correct one. I disagree with that, but for argument's sake, let's assume that it is. 
Well, then why would we devastate our own domestic oil industry? Right. Why would we choke one of the greatest natural resources we have? And that is we have massive deposits of various forms of fossil fuels in this country, and we've literally sabotaged it. At the very time, we've tried to sabotage, we've tried to sabotage Russia's, and the Biden administration has so offended the Arabs, they don't even want to talk to him. Apparently, from what I'm reading, they don't even take his calls. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so, so here we are at what I worry, here, here's a doomsday scenario. The, the Arabs get fed up. You know, we're certainly not going to go, you know, you know, there isn't enough oil. And because oil is fungible, it doesn't matter who you embargo. It doesn't matter who you do and don't buy it from because it's a commodity. If you say, I'm not going to buy Russian oil. Okay, great. Even if you never import any Russian oil, <coughs> excuse me, uh, even if you never import any Russian oil, you've still impacted the world price of oil because you've effectively reduced the real supply of oil, and therefore the price is going to go up. And when you already, and when you have a Federal Reserve that's already, you know, put its balance sheet in the ten trillion dollars, it's printed money left and right, and there's all this structural inflation that's that's uh, that's already there because of monetary policy, and then as extra kindling. Now you have all of this, all, all of this consumer inflation as a result of supply chain shocks, most of which our own government has caused. And that, I believe, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an economist, not a politician, but I believe the Democrats are going to take a bloodbath in the midterms. I mean, I think it's going to, I think it's going to be something we've never seen. Because here, at least in Georgia, I mean, even... Uh, everybody that I, in my world, from the musicians I hang out with, to the farmer I meet, <laughs> to the neighbor, uh, black, white, regardless of, of ethnicity, everybody's not very happy with Biden right now. Agreed. Thousand percent agree. Uh, you know, I, I hang out with a lot of musicians. They tend to be, you know, jazz and kind of blues musicians. So they tend to be or liberal. disproportionately African-American. And... Uh, they're fed up with him too. Oh yes, this is not. <laughs> this is one of those things. It's not specifically racial or anything else. He has failed miserably. And yeah, I agree with you. There's going to be a bloodbath coming up in the House and the Senate. I mean, you know what they're saying? The Democratic Party is basically thinking that the January sixth thing um, is going to be enough to hopefully hold the House. And then there are these kind of vague hopes that. Republicans go overboard on Roe v. Wade and get rid of it. Let's say the Supreme Court basically makes case law, something like that, where they can gen up their supporters. Meaning their framing of this is not, we've gotten X, Y, Z accomplished and we can run on our accomplishments. It's entirely, we need to somehow drag Trump back into this to make that part of the conversation in order to get the public to basically remember that they didn't like Trump and to come out and vote for Democrats. This is their plan. They can't even, they don't even have anything to run on. So yeah, I think they're going to get crushed in the midterms. Absolutely crushed. And I think the big shock to them is the African-American vote. That's my big prediction today is because I feel it. I see it in the streets and maybe it's anecdotal, but no, I don't think it is. I see it myself, Mark. Being treated, they're tired of being treated like, like they are a commodity that gets manipulated every four years. It's almost as if they've just said, you know what, we're going to red pill out and we're going to look at the things as it actually is. So, for instance, if you make your living as a musician, usually 
And there are some exceptions, but generally local musicians are pretty poor. Well, the price of guitar strings have, have nearly tripled. Why? Because what are they made with? Nickel, chromium, <laughs> you know, uh, all these metals that, uh, that, that come from mining. And, and the price of the inputs have gone up dramatically. And so people realize that, that the prices are rising in everything, and they're getting tired of being gaslighted. Nothing makes a person matter than to treat them like they're an idiot. I don't care if it's a personal relationship or a political relationship. When you treat someone like they're a moron and you just say BS to them with a straight face, like they should take it and eat it, it makes them enraged. It just does. And I see that happening increasingly. I don't even like to say the black community because it's so diverse, but I see that amongst African-Americans that I encounter of all walks of life every day. Same here. And I'll tell you this as an African-American myself. Um, when I used to, I used, African-American community almost reflexively vote Democrat. Now, the reason they do this is because they're so terrified of Republicans that the vote that they take is not really a free vote. It's never been a free vote. That basically, it's not a situation where you go to the polling and it's like, all right, I have two people to vote for or three people. I can vote for any of these people. Doesn't work that way. The only choice that African-Americans get from their perspective is in the midterms, or I'm sorry, in the primaries. The moment that any random Democrat gets out the primaries at that point, it's a whole back-the-night vote. That the goal of it is we need to keep Republicans out of office. That's existential. And so that means any random Democrat get the vote. And for the longest time, that's been the modest operandi. And I remember speaking with um, my ex's dad. And he was like, oh, I'm never going to vote Republican. I got to vote Democrat. I remember fighting in the 60s, et cetera. Do you know that one of the last conversations I had with him, he was like, they would never get my vote again. Talking about Democrats. That was over like two or three years. And that change happened because he realized these people are worthless. Of all the priorities and things that affect me and all the things that I care about, they don't do anything on. So not only do they get 90% of the vote tally, they get it for nothing. Now, after a while, like you said, that grates. That becomes one of those issues where people don't. They get sick of, they get tired of, and they get feeling like they've been taken advantage of. Yeah, Mark, you're dead on on this. You're dead on. I guess we'll, we have about 30 seconds. What would the Republican Party do substantially different to Democrats if they took power? Can the Republican Party do what? Substantially different than Democrats. Well, one thing I, th well, I've had mixed feelings around Trump, but one thing Trump did was he transformed the Republican Party. It's much more populist than it was because Republicans used to be stupid. When I was a kid, they were the buzzkill. We're going to have to close this because we're coming to the break. And I shouldn't have asked that question at the very end, but very much appreciate you um, coming on. Mark Frost is an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Jupiterian, and recovered libertarian. You can follow him on Twitter at Frosty Cash. Always have great conversations with Mark. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaro Thomas, and I will be your only corner for today. And that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas, or with Jamal Thomas. All right, let's get into our headlines. Look, I'd love Mark Frost coming on as a guest. Because, again, 
Mark Frost has been more right. Um, for the last year or two, Mark Frost has been saying this inflation is not transitory. This inflation is going to be here and it's going to be here for a long time. And this stuff is based on policies that we've taken. He's also been very clear on this point that, look, this is not a situation where this is something that um, is going to get better. This is not a situation that is an act of God. This is really, in real terms, a situation of something that we're encountering based on the policies that these guys have taken. And look, we're dealing with it, right? And to exacerbate the situation by having the events on the geopolitical stage basically take place with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the U.S. and NATO acting as if, oh, this is just cosmic. This is just happening. No, we had nothing to do with this. We're not culpable at all. Look, either way we put it, these are human events that have basically created the situation that we're presented with, where the situation is basically getting worse. And my point is, Frost was right all the way through. Even in his explanation of, look, this cost is higher than what they're basically saying this cost is. And how this stuff affects, especially the people on the lower end of the economic scale or the people in the middle level of that scale, will be mad. We're going to see the political consequences of it going forward. And we'll see if Biden can make it stick that he has nothing to do with this. He has no culpability at all. And this is entirely Putin's fault. I don't think that's going to stick considering the perspective that the American public has of Joe Biden. But we'll see. Let's get in the headlines. In the news, in national news, Governor Greg Abbott backtracked on his get tough border approach on Wednesday, announcing during a news conference on Laredo, Texas, that the Lone Star State will cease its controversial inspections of cargo trucks at the southern U.S. border with Mexico. Abbott claimed that the move came because he and the Leon Governor Samuel Alejandro Garcia Tulva signed a memorandum agreeing to enhance border security on Mexico's side of the border. That is a weird, that is a very weird story. The more I read that story, the more I think about it. Foreign policy is an issue of the UN, of, of basically the president. Um, that is his purview. That is not the purview of governors. There's a reason for that. I mean, ultimately, you're talking about something dealing with foreign policy when you're talking about either Mexico, immigration, and those type of things. Which means that if a governor of a border state decides to start taking policy in his own hands, what does that mean for the president's discretion in regards to what is in the best interest of the country, something that he himself is responsible for, where the governor is responsible for his own state? That's why the story is weird. This notion that the governor is making some kind of deal is just beyond the pale. It's insane. In international news, a fire on board the Russian missile cruiser Osava, yet Moskva, has been contained and the risk of further detonations of ammunitions on board has been averted, the Russian Defense Ministry stated. The ship maintains its buoyancy and attempts are being made to tug it to a port for repairs. The cause of the initial fire, which prompted a detonation of ammunition on board that severely damaged the ship, is still being investigated according to the Russian Defense Ministry. It further elaborated that the main missile ammunition stop was not affected by the incident. The ship's crew, in turn, has been safely evacuated to nearby ships of the Russian Black Fleet. The UK will send asylum seekers to offshore processing centers in the East African nation of Rwanda as part of the government's new plan to tackle soaring numbers of illegal immigration being trafficked across the English Channel from mainland Europe. The blueprint is due to be unveiled by Prime Minister Boris Johnson later on Thursday before Home Secretary Priti Patel signs a five-year agreement for a migration and economic development partnership in Rwanda's capital, Kigali. That story is so weird. I mean, think about that for the moment. They're basically asylum seekers that are trying to get asylum in the UK, processing centers in East African nation of Rwanda as part of the government's new plan to tackle soaring numbers of illegal immigrants being trafficked across the English Channel from mainland Europe. 
So basically, people are being trafficked from mainland Europe, and the UK came up with a deal to send them to Rwanda? What in the F? <laughs> that is bizarre. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. You don't want them in your country. And we need to take our country back. This is them taking their country back, apparently. In Earth and Science News, researchers identified the first known interstellar meteor that hit Earth some eight years ago. CNN reported detailing new developments in the discovery of recent years. It is indeed an uncommon occurrence in the solar system since the interstellar meteor is a space rock that originates from beyond our solar system. According to the report, Amir Siraj, who recognized the item as an interstellar meteor in 2019 article he co-authored as an undergraduate at Harvard University, was taken aback by the discovery. Siraj was working with Harvard University professor um, of science, Abraham Avilob, on the study of Oumuamua, the first interstellar object known in our solar system in 2017. And again, the Oumuamua thing is really interesting based on Avilob. We've had Avilob on the show multiple times. Guy is extremely affable, easy to talk to, and is very interested in the subject of UFOs. His point is that Oumuamua doesn't necessarily look like just a regular object, a thing that's going at fantastic speeds in this kind of ballistic way through space. He thinks that there is some indication that this thing is moving or acting in ways that flies in the face of it being just being purely ballistic. And yeah, he even postulated that this was from some kind of ancient alien civilization and this thing is just kind of flying through space as a remnant. Look, it's fascinating whether it's true or not. It's almost secondary to the point that it's an interesting discussion and he wrote the book on it so you can basically evaluate him by his own um, evidence for it. In business news, Tesla billionaire Elon Musk has made his best and final offer to buy Twitter and turn the company private in an SEC filing this morning. Musk is offering $54.20 per share, a 54% premium. Over the day, he bought a 9% stake in the company, totaling $41.3 billion deal. The proposal was delivered in a letter to Twitter's chairman last night. Musk says Twitter needs to go private to go through the changes that need to be made. Musk says he will says he would need to reconsider his position as a shareholder if the offer is not accepted. This is amazing when you think about it. Think of the reach and the leverage of Twitter and the way that mainstream media at this point and the way that they're putting out stories. That stuff basically goes through Twitter, social media, where especially the younger demographic gets most of their information from that. So whereas Jeff Bezos will buy a newspaper, well, Elon Musk just says, I just want to buy Twitter. I want to buy the company. Now, that may have dramatic implications for Twitter and the way that they silence certain voices, the way they eliminate certain media, and for that matter, even the way that they would withhold certain stories depending upon whether or not they basically want those stories to go out. Meaning that despite having this notion of them being a platform and they're supposed to have these kind of openness to voices and everything else, that is decidedly not the way Twitter functions. And so if Elon Musk is basically trying to buy it, take it private, and then expose it in a way where it's like, look, this is a free speech platform from here on out, period. That would be dramatic. <laughs> that would be dramatic. And yeah, while I think the fact that we are looking for a billionaire to basically save spe- free speech gets across, that the notion of free speech is basically dead, or at the very least on a respirator, in this very specific situation based on what Elon Musk wants to accomplish with Twitter, I think I'm on board for it. Senator Ted Cruz recently refused to comment on whether or not he would perform fellatio in order to end world hunger. Cruz and his co-host, Michael Knowles, were discussing the Supreme Court's confirmation of Ketanji Brown-Jackson when a student named Eva Evan went to the microphone and set a difficult moral and ethical dilemma for Ted Cruz. 
Here's the clip. We actually have the clip. Let's play the clip. Hello. My name is Evan. Um, assuming that would end global hunger, would you fillet another man? I do have an answer to this. Uh, all right, I, I actually think it is better that the Yaley answer this. <laughs> you know, there was a line in there was a line in American Psycho about that Yale thing. I think that's what our questioner is alluding to. Uh, like a like a typical left wing undergraduate, you are engaging in consequentialist ethics. You are attempting to justify flagrantly immoral behavior to achieve a good end. And and I tell you, my friend. The ends do not justify the means. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Wow. Let's stop there. Let's stop there. Basically, let them starve to death. Let them starve to death. If it was up to me to give another man oral sex in order to get rid of world hunger, no. And then apparently, Michael Knowles put world hunger perpetrator on his Twitter handle um, in order to talk about this. Hey, it's not morally anything. It's nothing. There's no God to care one way or the other about it. It's just human beings making a decision of what they want to do or what they want, don't want to do. You just don't like it. You can't necessarily add God into it to make it look as if God is my homeboy on this particular issue. He is not. You need to stand on your own if you're going to make assertions like that. On the second point, not only is it not an immoral behavior or this notion of consequentialism, reality is consequence. It just is what it is what it is. You take a choice, you have a certain point of view, and those things have effects in the outside world that have consequences, whether it is implicit or explicit. He's just positioning you with a moral dilemma. It's a moral dilemma for you because you find it to be a moral issue. It's not a moral dilemma for him. From his standpoint, he's poking fun at you for how ridiculous your answer is. Look, you can make a choice in saying, yes, I'm willing to have all of these people die as opposed to me taking this act that I find to be a debasing act of myself. By the same token, it is a funny, funny prospect that the person has the answer. And I'm sorry, it seems that the answer to this is just yes um, on, on, on basis alone. But look, people are different, right? Um, me debasing myself seems to matter less to me as opposed to getting rid of world hunger. But whatever. Um, human, you know, hunger perpetrator, Ted Cruz and Knowles. Um, let's go into holiday news. We have cake and cannoli this day. <laughs> just continuously back up um, the previous story. And hey, you know, have at it, yo. It's your day. Do your service. It's on, it's on you. It's on you. National Pecan Day, National Ex-Spouse Day, Tamil New Year, and National Dolphin Day. In this day in history, we have, in 1981, America's first space shuttle, Columbia, returns to Earth. In 1961, we have the first live broadcast that's televised from the Soviet Union. In 1912, the passenger liner Titanic, the unsinkable, sinks. <laughs> basically, Dean Unsinkable strikes an iceberg on her first voyage and begins to sink. The ship will basically go under, losing 1,500 lives on the very next day. That is an astonishing man. I'm, that's astonishing. Sorry. Look, those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. And one last thing for this that I kind of want to go back to for a moment. And this has to do with Elon Musk buying Twitter. That is a massive, massive deal. If Elon Musk basically says, I am going to get my hands on Twitter. Now, look, I don't use Facebook. I haven't used Facebook in forever. From the standpoint of Twitter, I do use. I use it to organize my um, stories and titles and everything else. It's my way of kind of organizing what I'm going to talk about for either this show or for the show in general. And honestly, most of the stuff that we talk about headline-wise, you can always go to my Twitter account, basically. Fine. Um, I have been greatly uh, bothered by what this country has been doing, especially from the standpoint of social media. 
it's one thing when we have this kind of town crier. And the town crier goes out into D.C. and just screams at the height of his lungs about this or that and the things that he wants to change. Okay, fair enough. Government can't necessarily say we don't want you to do that town crying. You have a first amendment. Fair enough. The world is great. The world changes. And you get these kind of technological capabilities that expands the capabilities of humanity. And it expands it in all sorts of ways. Either you're a fighting capability, meaning instead of using your fist and using now using a nuclear weapon. Or in this case, your ability to speak, instead of being speaking with the mouth, you do so on this kind of megaphone of electronic domain. You have an electronic medium that expands that stuff out from your capabilities and the number of people you can reach. From the standpoint of radio, when radio became this disruptive element going back to the war, you expand that to TV, you expand that to the situation where now, instead of having a television networks that have a very specific control of the point of view and the tenor of conversation that is basically taking place in the country because that is the only megaphone that exists, well, you end up with social media networks that allow that to diffuse that much more where people can now talk about all sorts of issues. You want a guy who wants to talk about all Star Trek? He can do that. He can spend 30 minutes talking about Star Trek, every little aspect of it, every little quirk and corner of it. If you want them to talk about Ukraine, if you want them to talk about chess, you have your world where you can talk about all of those things and people will devote massive amounts of attention to doing so and people will give their time to listen to them do that. What about issues of news or issues of foreign policy? You could see how, no, the government may not care if people are occupying themselves with cat videos. They will care if the narrative that they're basically putting out in order to get people to orient around a certain point of view gets challenged and challenged in a way where you are getting more views on social media or those stories are becoming more viral in a way that the boundaries that are basically set up from the standpoint of televised media can no longer compete and can no longer control. And so then you get these social media networks that start becoming an arm of state. And so stories that will come out that may hurt Joe Biden gets blocked or prevented. Information that may come out that may hurt Hillary Clinton when she's running gets blocked or prevented on certain networks. The Biden story, Hunter Biden thing, gets blocked. They even say that story wasn't even real, despite the fact that a year later after the election, after Biden was safely entrenched in the White House, then it comes out that, yes, not only is it real and accurate, there are all sorts of things that implicate Joe Biden in regards to dealings with the son. It's astonishing. How do you have a legitimate democracy in a situation where media is constrained? And that's the question that we need to confront. If Elon Musk is getting to a situation where he's basically going to buy Twitter and he's going to open that and turn that into more of a free speech platform, and he's saying it needs to be private in order for him to do so, I applaud it. Completely and entirely applaud it. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. Back in a moment. You're going to love this guest. It's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to get into the notion of Shanghai and what is basically taking place there on the ground. We've been hearing all sorts of stories on this. We have a great guest um, who can basically explain what is happening. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Jamal Thomas. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm here in Washington, D.C. If you guys are here in D.C. with me and you want to catch the show live, you can join us at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what I'm putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us the like and share that audio or video. Not to mention, hit that rumble. Also, if you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be 
shy. COVID has not, is not over with yet, even though it feels that way in the United States. Many of the COVID restrictions have basically been removed. And despite having nearly a million people basically die from COVID, um, ultimately, people have tried to get back to some level of normality, um, despite the fact that there's still variants that are going around. And of course, people are still getting sick and people are still dying. This is never more true um, than China that has been very aggressive in its reaction towards COVID beforehand, but even now. And I'll just read the top part of this. China's financial hub, Shanghai, reported over 27,000 COVID cases on Thursday, a new high a day after President Xi Jinping said that the country must continue with a strict, dynamic, quote, dynamic COVID clearance, unquote, policy and pandemic control measures. And I'll just put this part. Shanghai is battling China's worst COVID-19 outbreak since the virus first emerged in Wuhan in 2019, with its 25 million residents remaining largely under lockdown, though restrictions were partially eased in some areas this week. Let's have a conversation about what is taking place in China, because there's been all sorts of reports that have been coming out, some of which make the case of people being stuck in their homes, issues associated with them being able to get food. I mean, there's even one report talking about stickers being put on people's doors or these kind of drones telling people to stay in their houses. What is the reality on the ground? At this point, I got to be honest, I am very distrustful of the way Western media deals with countries that it's at odds with. China is one of those countries. To have a conversation about it, we're joined. We're joined with Matthew Eddard. Matthew Eddard is a journalist and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation. He is editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review, senior fellow at American University of Moscow, and BRI expert for Rogue News and Tactical Talk. Matthew is a regular author, regular author to Strategic Cultural Foundation, The Cradle, Global Research, Luke Rockwell, Nexus, and Adiran. He has authored the four-volume, quote, The Untold History of Canada, unquote, and recently published a book series, The Clash of Two Americas. Matthew, thank you for joining us, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me back on. No, no, no. Absolutely. It's good that we, um, I remember you on being once before. Um, my producer was like, hey, there's a great story that came out by Matthew. And when I looked, I was like, that name is so familiar to me. That name is so familiar to me. And the fact that I remembered it meant that the interview must have went well and that um, it, it must have turned out well. And so when I had the opportunity to read your new article, I was like, yes, we got to get this guy on. This is great. And so your article is called Putting the Shanghai Lockdown in the Context. China sees this as a bioweapon. Now, that's somewhat of an explosive ending to that headline. Now, do they really see this as a bioweapon? And just to start off, explain what you meant by that, by that title meaning the way that China is basically viewing this and why they're being so aggressive in regards to dealing with the lockdowns and everything else. Give me your take on what we're seeing with the, um, their response. Most certainly. From the earliest days of this whole uh, pandemic that was sprung onto the world over two years ago, the Chinese foreign ministry had already released uh, tweets and messages indicating their interpretation or assumption that this is a bioweapon. There were articles from Global Research uh, published by Larry Romanoff uh, that the foreign ministry spokesperson put out, pointing out these anomalies early on that, for example, only Asian Han genotypes were being struck, whether it was in Hubei province or originally that was locked down, or as it began to appear within the coming weeks after January or in Canada, in Europe, in the USA, People say, oh, yeah, it was Canadians, it was Europeans, it was Americans. But when you actually look at the data, these were all Chinese tourists, people who, who were Chinese of ethnic descent in these various countries, all the way until the very end of February when it began to spread. And again, there was a lot of anomalous targeting of certain genotypes. Uh, the, we, everyone knows that the Iranians got hit very, very hard uh, early on. 
whatever this was. There's a lot of evidence as well that the U.S. has had in its in operation a heavily funded bioweapons infrastructure that really took hold. I mean, it had been going on for many decades, but after 9-11, um, after, you know, people remember the towers, but they forget that you had before the towers, not just war games um, that involved planes crashing into pentagons and twin towers that had happened in the 12 months before 9-11, but you also had things like Dark Winter. What would be done if Saddam Hussein were to release a a weaponized pathogen, I think that was smallpox, that Fauci even presided over this this war game exercise, and how the U.S. would retaliate by regime change. Of course, at that time, they went with the planes. But we had also things like the anthrax attacks uh, starting in September 18th, 2001. That was demonstrably, books have been written about this. This was an inside job. They threw a patsy under the bus who was working at Fort Detrick. Um, but this was, you know, five people died, many more were injured, but it was an inside job that justified the creation of the BioShield Act under Dick Cheney, Victoria Newland, his assistant played a big role in this, John Bolton, and the, the whole project for new American century crowd that had authored the, the PNAC document that I think most people have heard of. It directly says in September, 2000, that the war of the 21st century will, will take place with, uh, weaponized pathogens that can uh, target specific ethnic groups. So all that to say, the Chinese are not stupid. The Russians are not stupid. They've been looking at the growth of the 300 plus U.S. bio laboratories, which recently came into people's you know awareness more real more recently when Victoria Newland was forced to admit this in uh, Senate that this actually was the case. The U.S. did operate a variety of these things, which were you know, bio research facilities when they were in American hands, but only, <laughs> but all of a sudden became weaponized when they were in Russian hands in Ukraine. Um, but they're not just in Ukraine where there's 30, at least, uh, there's 300 internationally in 30 countries and Taiwan has its own array of them. There's a lot circling, encircling China. And there's a lot of anomalies since, like I said, for the past two years that whatever is this thing that we've labeled COVID is not the same thing everywhere. It is continuously having detrimental effects on the Chinese. There's evidence that has been uh, produced by many doctors like Dr. Chetty, Dr. Sona Pekova, that, uh, that this is being seeded, that it targets specific organs in different waves and that there are different parts of the world, like in South Africa, where Dr. Chetty who testified at the, uh, uh, the Reiner Fudemich coronavirus investigative committee recently. He pointed out that, uh, the, the first wave of all of his patients were, were only blacks. The second wave was only Indians. The third wave was only whites and Arabs. Um, so in, you, you have things that the Chinese have been looking at and they, I think, especially with the February 4th, um, call between the Chinese and the Russians to create a new, um, economic security architecture for the new era, uh, the Chinese basically rebuked the USA, uh, Biden, uh, Blinken, who went and threatened China at the uh, after the the military intervention began in Russia? They you know they threatened China, saying you better sanction Russia, and uh, China said no. And upon the the departure, the end of that meeting, I think that there were a lot of signs that there were um, there were signs of an attack of a bioterror attack on China as a response or retaliation for their defiance of orders. Um, all along the coastline, there was anomalous activity, and I think Shanghai. Keep in mind. This is a, uh, a nerve center, a financial nerve center of China, 26 million people, as you pointed out. And uh, I mean, 
it's like the Wall Street of China in a sense. If you want to really cripple the, the nation where there's a high density of people, a high uh, strategic value, that would be a place you would want to deploy something of a pathogen. Um, I'm not even going to say it's necessarily a virus. Whatever this is, there there is something lab generated that has been deployed. And uh, and I think China has been in DEFCON too, plain and simple. So let me, okay, that's a lot to unpack. Let's start at the beginning for that one. Um, is there, so I get the evidence where there was this question of whether this came out of a lab or whether this was a, let's say, coming out of a, um, what did they call it? A, a, a food place, basically. Whether it came out of um, a Wuhan lab in China or whether it came out of the food place. So fair enough. I accept that Fauci, and that this is an open question, right? Because at the end of the day, when Fauci got a hold of this in the very beginning, Fauci basically set it up as if it was impossible that this was a leak. Now, we find out later that Fauci and many of the doctors that he was talking to at the same time basically didn't know this. And some of those guys actually really did believe that this was human engineered in some particular way. This was the conversations that they were having. And Fauci basically put it out to the press as if this wasn't part of the mix. This wasn't part of the conversation. Fauci didn't know. He just took a position, a political position, despite the fact that he's supposed to be a doctor. This is kind of why I keep saying Fauci needs to be fired for this. Now, beyond that point, though, the fact that it is an open question means it's an open question. And so this idea that, yes, this was absolutely a viral pathogen, we don't know that. I don't know that. I haven't seen nothing to indicate that as a flat fact. And I question whether or not even China knows that. Now, China is dealing with a situation where the United States basically said they were committing genocide. You have a belligerent, dementia-riddled president that is basically calling Russia and what was taking place in Ukraine a genocide. And so at the point where everybody's throwing these bombastic words around where reality doesn't matter, they just, you know, in their feelings, that person is Hitler, just out the blue. doesn't matter. Reality doesn't matter. Is it possible that China is also getting in on this, especially in a way of pushing back against the United States for all of these kind of weird assertions that none of them are ever cooperated? Meaning, how do you know that this isn't this case of a game of kings where the war in this case is taking place from the standpoint of a propagandistic standpoint, not necessarily military or economic? Meaning this is just a fuse or a phase or a realm of conflict that's basically taking place where assertions are being thrown back and forth by nations that consider themselves existential from the standpoint of risk. Meaning, how do you know or how does what gives you indication that this is indeed a bioweapon as opposed to um, a pathogen that either got out of a lab or that got out of a particular wet market? Meaning, I'm trying to get at what, why do they think that? What gives you the indication that this is a weapon as opposed to this just being a mistake? Well, of course, we we definitely need to have a proper investigation. And as you pointed out, there is an information war, a, a heavily controlled um, narrative system whereby the media is entirely under the influence of the mainstream legacy media of intelligence agencies. And it's been a, it's been like that, you could say, a long, for a long time since the Cold War. You've had Project Mockingbird, other things. It got a lot worse. And even now, we know that there's a lot of lies. Uh, so that's one thing. But we need we need proper investigation to objectively look at the facts. We know that some of the facts involve what I just pointed out, the, the existence of an intent um, from forces who are currently in control of the Biden presidency, who were there in uh, the period of September 11th, who took over with uh, George Bush uh, Jr., um, who put on the table, as I pointed out, uh, an intention to carry out a certain uh, type of asymmetrical warfare of the 21st century, that they, they point out cyber as well as bioterror. But number two, Look, the, the Russians have been trying to pr present the information, the evidence that they have acquired so far um, in the uh, the case of the, the Ukrainian intervention. And the Russian ambassador, the Russian representatives at the United Nations have tried to present their case 
their evidence of uh, the Ukrainian role in the Pentagon-run bioterror apparatus. Um, they have a lot of evidence. The efforts to try to present that at the UN Security Council have been rebuked by the uh, the British, who are the current presidents. The Chinese representative, um, what's his name, Zhang Jun, has repeatedly said the world must listen to Russia. They're the only voice right now at the Security Council who had been trying to very hard to bring attention back to this. So, and I think that, you know, if you look again at the the amount of just evidence of the fact that there is, um, there, there has been this operation in place for the past, especially 20 years, um, including also the response to many of these pathogens that have been released into the population. Um, we know that Africans as well have been, oh, Kenyans, millions of Kenyans have been sterilized by tetanus vaccines that had been backed by Bill Gates and others. Uh, that's like not, that's not conspiracy theory. That's a fact The the Kenyan government uh, many governments in Africa have brought their attention to this. The Indian government has had their own cases of paralysis in the, I think, 40,000 women and children uh, by various uh, vaccine experiments that were done onto them as if this was completely unknown or that this couldn't have known that, that these effects were going to happen. The, the effects were completely knowable. Um, so, I mean, I, you, you have a lot of evidence that people, if we had healthy, normal media, they would be covering these things. But we don't, unfortunately. There's a lot of effort to cover it up, to pretend that Victoria Newland did not just admit to what she admitted uh, publicly. And uh, and again, you know, if you just look at what China has been dealing with, the fact that whatever has been seeded and is deployed in China called COVID-19 is very different from the sort of um, variants that we've been receiving in the Caucasian transatlantic community. It's it's not the same thing. Different how? What's the difference? That there's more aggressive variants, more aggressive symptoms. Uh, there's things that have been attacking the the Chinese um, lungs in a worse way. I mean, the the Asians have uh, five times more ACE2 putative receptors in their lungs than the than Caucasians do. Okay, so um, they have two point five percent of all of the cells in their lungs, which are these ACE2 receptors, versus only 0.4 percent in whites. I know, but isn't that indicative that a certain mutation may have higher effects or different effects in one population than another? Meaning we've had multiple variations. We've had, what, Delta? We've had the original variation. And when they initially gave the vaccine for the original variation, meaning I don't know whether it was a lab leak or not. I'm more so hitting this notion of whether it's a bioweapon that was engineered to basically kill Chinese in Shanghai. That's the thing that I'm kind of pointing at saying I'm very dubious of that. Meaning, I accept that people may be different. I even accept that from the standpoint of the variations, that those variants have different effects. So you start off with one, where they give a vaccine for, people with the vaccine don't necessarily get sick, but people, everybody else, of course, they're getting sick. Then you get a variation that basically breaks through the vaccination issue. So then you have people who are basically vaccinated all of a sudden getting sick. No, they weren't necessarily dying in numbers, but they were definitely getting sick. Then you get another variant. That variant is more um, virulent even though it is not necessarily as deadly as the other variant. The point I'm making here is each variant presented with a certain different um, viewpoint or a different um, effect in the way that it was dealing with people. And depending upon the biology of the various people, and to your point, they may have a different physiology in regards to um, being Asians and certain differences in their genome or their makeup, then by definition, wouldn't that mean that a variant that hits them may affect them in somewhat of a different way than somebody else? It may not necessarily be planned, 
It may just be an issue of their biology lends itself to being undermined by that particular variant. Well, this is, again, why we need a proper uh, analysis that isn't being blocked by the media or, I mean, even the medical community. There, there are, there's been a usefulness to having the Reiner Friedrich, uh coronavirus uh, investigative committees that have been going on for over a year and a half, uh, where various experts around the world who would no, normally not have a platform, who have been cut down, have been given a platform to demonstrate their findings. Um, you know, there's, so there's a lot of useful data there uh, to work with. Uh, Dr. Sonia Pekovia from the, she's a, a, a molecular biologist who's been working with CRISPR uh, technology from the Czech Republic. I mean, her testimony recently was quite good, where she was going through the evidence of the uh, the various uh, different strains that she had evaluated and how you had a loss of many of the mutations that had occurred from a previous strain that we were told were being mutated. Um, the fact was that it's scientifically impossible for a, a new strain that had come from an old strain to have lost its previous mutations. Uh, and she used 30,000 samples that she was analyzing um, as uh, using advanced CRISPR uh, analysis tech. Um, so th there's that's just one of hundreds of similar scientists who have been blocked from having a platform to speak about their findings that would disrupt the overarching narrative that this is a random mutation that just came from a pangolin kissing a bat that got that got cooked or something. No, like, like I said, I accept that it could be, meaning I accept that it is an open question of whether or not this came from a lab or whether it came from something else. I guess my thing is bioweapon is very specific from the standpoint of intentional. That's somebody doing something in order to intentionally destroy or kill a large number of people. And the ramifications of that are so profound um, in, in regards to what it means that, yeah, there needs to be a certain level of, there's a high burden of proof with something like that. That's all I'm getting at. And so I accept that, yeah, research should be done. And yeah, I accept that these things should be talked about and discussed and everything else. And we often have doctors here to kind of go into um, the reality of it. Because the medical science gets very complicated at a certain point. And I'm not even going to try to try to say I understand it because oftentimes I don't. It's, it gets weird. And we usually bring in people to try to explain it. Um, but look, I, I accept the, that that is the way some people are looking at it. Um, but like I said, at the point where you're in this kind of propagandistic war, it's hard for me to know where the floor is. And I tend to be very skeptical of some of the larger claims in regards to intentionality for some of the stuff. But I can admit, freely admit, I don't know. Um, so I, I'm fair with that. that. That's fair. And, you know, like that, I think that's why the, the Chinese leadership, the official leadership will never just come out uh, and say anything like they, they will play into the narrative. And they've been trying to control the narrative and the response that they're able to take as a nation state to whatever the hell this thing is. Um, because as soon as you start talking openly as a political leader, a statesman of your nation about bioweaponry, then that implies a whole different set of geometries that you're operating in. That, that, that creates fault lines that, sh that they, they want to avoid. They want to avoid World War III. So, yeah, the, I mean, this is confusing a lot of Westerners who are like, well, why don't they just say it if it's true? Why, you know, it's like if they say it, that means you're basically cutting off all lines of communication. It means we're going into war mode now. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like I said, the ramifications of it are extreme. I mean, like, it's astonishing. And I wouldn't necessarily put it past any country to put out information like that to kind of ding the opposition, especially from the standpoint of their own local populations. I mean, for God's sake, the United States have been lying for the past several months in mass, voluminously, and owned up to the fact that they've been lying about it. And speaking about that, I want to get to that for a moment. From the standpoint of one of your articles, it says, can the U.S. return to their senses or is World War III inevitable? And I've been a bit, I don't want to call it hysterical, but at the very least, I guess I feel that way, 
with a certain level of severity that's associated with the way the media has been organizing the public into this white hat, black hat mindset that has no basis in reality. And the way the Biden or Biden seems to be losing his mind and dragging this country closer and closer to war. Listen to this clip. This is Biden basically coming out and he seems to be getting hysterical as he deals with the reality of, oh, my God, this isn't working the way I thought it was going to work. Oh, my God, the American public is getting hit with just radically bad inflation levels, not to mention NATO and Europe. And yeah, I'm going to get blamed for it when I get wiped out um, in the midterms from the standpoint of Senate and whatnot. And yeah, from my standpoint of presidency and my chances going forward, yeah, this looks bad. This is not something that's going well. That's what it seems to be. And this idea of an economic war is not going the way he planned. I mean, in Biden's mind, we're going to unleash shock and awe economic warfare. And we're going to destroy and gut the Russian economy so much so that the people rise up and get rid of Putin. That's his schoolboy ridiculous framing of events that in no way happened that way. If anything, Putin's approval rating went up to like 80%. Biden is on the worst that we've had with exception maybe Trump. And European leaders are in a situation where they are getting that much more pressure because of the level of inflation and economic pressures and everything else. So meaning he is under pressure because this is not going according to the plan. And that stuff seems to be, he seems to be cracking at the seams and is getting himself into a political quandary where this country is going to continuously start asking him how your questions of, okay, well, what else are you going to do? How further are you getting involved? Let's play the clip. Let's hear Biden. I'm doing everything within my power by executive orders to bring down the price and address the Putin price hike. In fact, we've already made progress since March inflation data was collected. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide in a half a world away. To help deal with this Putin price hike, I've authorized the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months from our strategic petroleum reserve. This is by far the largest release of our national reserve in history. It's a wartime bridge to increase oil supply as we work to, with U.S. Producer, oil producers to ramp up their production this year. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices and food prices all over the world. The two largest grain producers in the world, China and, uh, excuse me, Ukraine and Russia, are not doing what they usually do, so everything's going up. We saw today's inflation data. 70% of the increase in prices in March came from Putin's price hike in gasoline. We need to address this challenge with an urgency to the demands. That's why I've called on Congress to move immediately to lower the cost of families' utility bills, prescription drug bills, and more while lowering the deficit to reduce inflationary pressures. And that's what we've done. We lowered the deficit by $300 billion so far. So Biden is basically calling, saying genocide is being committed. Mind you, no investigations have taken place at all. And as I made the point before, the train station thing is, looks Look, based on the evidence that's coming out, looks seems to be more of a Ukrainian missiles, considering this stuff is not even Russian inventory, not to mention the um, serial numbers and stuff like that, um, and the pictures that have been released on it. He seems to be getting us closer and closer. I mean, the U.S. is opening up what the, um, is saying it, is just plastic. Well, well, they're passing more weapons, first thing. And then you have a Lindley's program that the Senate has basically approved. They're waiting on the House of Representatives to approve. Biden is basically trying to get all of these weapons um, fastlit or, or greenlit immediately to Ukraine in this process. And so it's like, will these guys come back to their senses? It doesn't seem like the answer is a yes. What's your take on this? I mean, to me, it just seems like they're getting closer and closer 
to getting the U.S. involved in this, even to the point of having reports of troops being on the ground, meaning members of um, Delta Force, or for that matter, members of the SAS, British and American on the ground. This stuff is astonishingly bad. What's your take on this? Super bad. Uh, super, super bad. I, I, I wish I had something um, positive to say about the U.S.'s behavior and all of this and the, the opportunities to get out of it. It's not like Putin has not been trying to provide uh, his, his opponents in the West a lot of opportunities to uh, escape and save face over the past, especially several months. He has. I mean, Russia had originally, before the military intervention, they increased supplies of oil and natural gas uh, to Europe. They simply had very common sense demands, right? Everyone knows that of simply ab abiding by some legally enforced uh, protocol to not join NATO, to not set up uh, basing operations or missiles against Russia on inside of Ukraine or Georgia. Like these are so absolutely common sense. And it would be in everybody's interest to simply work with Russia, with China, on projects that are in our win-win self-interest, building infrastructure, reindustrializing, all of these things are openly and still, as far as I could tell, still a desire from the Eurasian leadership. Biden seems to be, and I mean, Putin, I mean, sorry, uh, uh, Donald Trump, sorry, was at the very least moving the USA into that direction of cooperating with Russia on security issues, working with China on revitalizing U.S. Uh, Rust Belt and, and other destroyed, atrophied uh, industrial bases that had been killed by 50 years. So that was a, an orientation. Now we've got this other thing for the past year and a bit, which is completely belligerent as all hell and seems to be doing only things that, that are going to result in the U.S. self-destructing in the context of an actual hot war or an economic breakdown. It's not like we're punishing Russia. Russia is, pro is provably seeing a vast recovery of their economy happening at a very fast pace and the the markets that they're losing from the West are are being supplied by Eurasia and their partners um, very quickly. So I, I don't fully understand the complete logic of whatever it is that's controlling the U.S. at this time. Um, it's certainly not in the benefit of the people, um, either in the de Democratic aisle or in the Republican aisle. The people are not benefiting. The nation's ability to have security in the world and not be destroyed are not been, are not increasing. Um, so I, I do know that there are, I, I love the United States. I believe that there are powerful, good, patriotic, wonderful traditions embedded in the U.S. Uh, history that could feasibly be reawoken. It was reawoken a little bit when Trump was elected and Hillary was defeated, who was supposed to be the, you know, the Biden res <laughs> restoration candidate. Um, that didn't happen. So maybe it could happen again. I don't know, but we definitely need a movement of people in the United States who actually understand the nature of the game and, and call for certain constitutional reforms before the financial collapse really strikes. I mean, cause we, we're in the, we're in the collapse phase right now. Biden is obviously accelerating the, the supply chain breakdown, the loss of, of means of having food production. Farmers are being paid more than market share to destroy their food crops across the United States. And this is including Canada. Um, so there's artificial scarcity being built into the system right now on top of the belligerence uh, militarily overseas. Um, this has to be turned around fast because if this if we pass a certain point, a threshold, um, chaos will set in. And at that point, a lot of doors that are currently open are going to close. Um, and that would be just awful, really bad. I'm glad you said it that way, because it, it's when I criticize this country, oftentimes what mainstream media would do and they would say, Oh, he they just hate this country. No, it's the opposite, actually. I live here. 
And because I live here, my perspective of this stuff is more so oriented around, okay, what are the things that you can affect and what are the things you can change? And those things are going to be specifically related to government, meaning my responsibility in this world is not necessarily what takes place in other governments. I have less power in those governments. It's about what we do. That's where my culpability lands as an American and whether or not I'm okay with this, what this government is doing. And so it's like when you have a media that is basically oriented around, okay, we're just going to put out whatever state comes up with. Yeah, I find that to be against not only my best interests, my family's best interests, the country's best interests. I mean, in this very specific situation, we are taking a hit at a direct result of what these guys are doing geopolitically, what the government is doing. So it's like the criticism itself is more so geared towards oriented at these are governmental actions that are taking one step after the next that is making my life, my family's life, the people around me's life that much more miserable, that much harder. And then you get to why are they doing this? And to your point, it doesn't make sense in the context of what is in the best interest of this public, what is in the best interest of this world. It is very warped and out there. I'm, I'm curious, do you think, what do you think is driving Biden on this? Do you think he's just gotten to this kind of political headspace where, like I know for myself, sometimes you can get yourself so wrapped up into a mindset that everything else is subordinate to the mindset. And even if it's taking you into dark corners, even if there's all sorts of consequences for the things that you're doing, you're stuck in the mindset. Is that where we are? Where, or is it something different? Is it a situation where they look at it and say, we no longer have the capability to win and have this kind of hegemony in a global sense. And because we no longer have that capability, we need to break this world in half. Even if that means a certain amount of pain associated with it, it is a far better situation than us losing out, let's say, to either China or losing our, let's say, dominant position to a amalgam of countries that may come together to create a kind of block. Is that what's going on? Like, I'm trying to figure out why are they willing to go this route um, in order and, and suffer this much? Like, this could be a canary in the coal mine for the United States on this stuff, like in regards to the economic hegemony and what that means for the dollar and whether or not currencies or other countries um, recoil and respond in a way that tries to get rid of the dollar, like because they think, look at the way they stole their money. Look at the way they're using a dollar as a weapon. What if we get on the U.S.'s bad ends? India, right now, for example, the U.S. comes out immediately after a deal comes out, coming from Bloomberg, saying, hey, Russia and India are going to improve their relations in regards to um, billions of dollars of trade and everything else. The U.S. comes out immediately. You, India has human rights abuses that we've been watching. Like, after a while, this stuff is a caricature of stuff. It's just like, it's just, I, I'm trying to understand their point of view. What is your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just to speak on that, that topic before I take it a step back and, and, and address your deeper question. Um, yeah, look at what they've done to Pakistan, who had had um, Imran Khan had engaged in really working Pakistan into deeply embedded relationships with Russia, China on a variety of points, also as a key architect of the uh, China Afghan-Pakistan um, arrangement that was recently signed that involves extending the, the China-Pakistan economic corridor into Afghanistan and beyond other Middle Eastern countries would benefit immensely. And then you had Donald Yu from the U.S. State Department, a, a, you know, somebody working with Victoria Nuland, writing a threatening letter to the Pakistani ambassador saying, if you don't get rid of the current government, then uh, uh, it, there will be repercussions. This this went public, and yet, you know, Khan was was still, despite the resistance of nationalists within Pakistan, um, that was bypassed and he's now outed. Uh, you've got a huge desperation to get rid of the current government in Ethiopia as well, which is a strategic zone for China, as well as the Belt and Road in Africa. Uh, that's been a one-year project right now that 
has has been subverted. They were, they were supposed to have their regime change in Ethiopia after two weeks of Western uh, sponsored, you know, fighting with the TPLF. That has been suppressed thus far. China has helped. They're a, a major beachhead for developing and industrializing infrastructure in Africa. Um, so you got a lot of resistance. And I think what gives me a certain sense of hope is that the 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 recipes that used to work about eight, nine years ago, whether it was, you know, you want Libya overturned, you want uh, Ukraine overturned, you want a regime change in, in Iraq, you would they would get it without very little with very little resistance. Whereas today, all of those regime change programs, very few are going through successfully or the way that they wanted to, because you actually now have a coalition of ancient civilizational forces, you know, Iran, China, Russia, but also India getting on board, many others uh, that are finally as a block uh, capable to wield a certain amount of power to actually resist this parasite that has taken over control of many of the governments that had formerly been sovereign in the transatlantic community. Um, when you ask me about what is going on in the he- in the head of somebody like a, a Biden, yes, on, on one level, he's a hyper, hyper adapted uh, political creature who's only lived in the system for his whole adult life. Um, there's nothing really there. He's a shell of a shell. Like you, you can see him rambling on and lying in the 1980s when he was running for president about, you know, being the first in his class and with three uh, law degrees and stuff, always a lie. And, uh, he doesn't really, you know, there's nothing really there as far as substance that I could see. He's kind of like an older version of Trudeau with a little bit more senility in that sense. However, he has handlers who want to use him because he has a certain image, um, certain people who want to use his family, you know, every, I don't have to say anything about Hunter Biden and his connections to uh, Barissima, as well as his, uh, having funded Metabiota, uh, which is a contractor supplying the, pr- or providing support to the biolabs in, in Ukraine and beyond, uh, which is itself run by a guy who's tied to the world economic forum as, as a young leader. So, I mean, you're, you're dealing, you're pressing on something bigger, you know, than just the nation state itself. And, uh, I think as far as, uh, a similarity to what they're doing now by kicking over the chessboard because it's like they're they're having a I, I, almost like an adult infantile temper tantrum because they're they're taking up all and go working. home. <laughs> right, right. It's very weird. It's like we're taking up all to go home. Yeah, and I I think the the similarity that I would draw upon I, I wrote about this extensively in my book series is the uh, the British Empire in the late nineteenth century losing control. It was the only one world government that existed throughout throughout the entire nineteenth century. You know, the the sun never set. Yada yada. Right. It was a banking intelligence operation with with deep state fifth columns that were loyal to the city of London, penetrating various countries of the world: the U.S., India, you know, China through through Hong Kong, which the Chinese the the British had had controlled for a long time. And uh, this whole system was was disintegrating at the end of the 19th century with the spread of this different way of doing things coming out of Abraham Lincoln's victory and the adoption of Lincoln's overarching economic system in Japan with the Meiji Restoration in Russia with the protective tariff and the large-scale infrastructure and Trans-Siberian Railway helped with American engineers. Uh, in Germany and France, in South America, you had this spreading all over this idea that every nation state could control its own economic destiny. You don't have to have private central bankers telling you what to do. You could have a national bank doing things for the people yourself and do it in a, in a system of win-win cooperation, you know, uh, Berlin to Baghdad railways, China to Russia railways through Manchuria. They were all being built with the help of, of American patriots and, and German patriots and others. So what did the British do who were like, you know, a, a highly adapted maritime empire? They could only control the world through the through everybody's dependency on sea trade. If you develop your, your inland resources via rail, the, the British can't manipulate their choke points. They lose their power. 
They lost their ability to control nations via usury and private banking. So what did they do? They kicked over the chessboard, right? They initiated about 18 assassinations of high-level world leaders starting in the 1880s. Um, that then manifested in a war that had no purpose. World War I had no purpose. There was secret diplomacy uh, being done to get allies, friends and brothers to kill each other for four years in a meat grinder, which also killed a lot of British as well, right? Like the British didn't come out necessarily benefiting from that. Even in many of their own elites, their young, uh, young elites got killed on the, the trenches in World War I. Well, ended up in brutal empire after, after that war. Effect, effectively, that was what they say is the end of the empire. Now, the empire itself, I would say, n did not actually ultimately disband. It changed its costume. It changed its technique. And after World War II, it, uh, it basically took control of their dumb giant after Roosevelt died and they killed Kennedy. There was a British-controlled deep state operation that really amplified under this Anglo-American alliance. But it's still even today. You know, if you look at all of the, <laughs> the worst, cra craziest stuff that you see the U.S. doing— including even the the operations to destroy uh, Trump for four years from Russiagate. The intel all came from British intelligence, people like Christopher Steele, uh, Richard Dearlove, you know, their operatives inside of the United States, like Strobe Talbot, Oxford Road Scholar. Um, so the hand of the British are all over the place, British intelligence, not the people, not the nation even. Um, and I think that this is the, the sort of thing currently that is replicating what they did to kick over the chessboard a century ago, they're, they're, I think, vying to try to do that again, except the di difference today is now we have nuclear weapons, which makes this a lot more crazy. I mean, it was already crazy before that, but now it's even more unacceptable. So thank yeah, God. it goes to a level of insanity. No, I'm just saying it goes to a level of insanity the moment you add nukes to the table. Yeah, you cannot control the outcome of that. If you pass that threshold and, and all of a sudden you start allowing the release of, of nukes, yeah, forget it. Um, I, I think that, they, but they would rather avoid that. You know, they, they wanted Russia, China, India, other countries to be sort of like they were 10 years ago. They, they want to go back in time before the Belt and Road was created, before these different alliances were set up. Um, and everybody is in the same building that is going to be uh, set into a controlled demolition. And by the building, I'm using a metaphor of the economy. They wanted everybody in the same boat that they then sink. Now today, nobody's uh, most of half the world is not in that boat that they wanted to sink. So, you know, <laughs> their their calculus. Like we're sinking ourselves basically at this point. Yeah, it's it's Matthew. It's a mess. And no, it doesn't seem like it's going according to plan. Um, whose plan? Who knows? Doesn't seem to be working all that well. Matthew, thank you for this, man. I really appreciated this conversation. Matthew is a journalist and co-founder of Rising Tide Foundation. He's an editor in chief of Canadian Patriot Review. Senior Fellow at American University of Moscow and BRI expert for Rogue News and Tactical Talk. Matthew is a regular author to the Strategic Culture Foundation, The Cradle, Global Research, Luke Rockwell, Nexus, and Adoran. He has authored the four-volume The Untold History of Canada and recently published a book series, Clash of Two Americas. Let's do this. We have callers, so I want to go to our callers immediately. We have Liz. Liz, how's it going? You doing all right? Yes, I'm doing great. Um, I just wanted to call to basically say that, like, um, when you guys were talking about, like, Biden um, and slash the Democrats um, in particular and the African-American vote, I just agreed with everything you guys are saying. I'm a young black person myself, and it's like I voted for the last election, and I was like, okay, I want 10 things that these Dems need to get done, right? And I was like, I'll make it easy for them. They only got to do three on this list. Yeah, just do three. <laughs> right, just do three. <laughs> right. 
with the number one being student loans, because that is an issue. And Biden said himself he was okay with at least 10000 Where's my money, Joe? It's not there. So it's like I told myself if they can't do this, they're not going to get my vote for a very, very long time because it's like I've been telling my other friends who think I'm like weird when I'm just like, I don't think I'm going to vote. And like the next election is I'm just like, well, guys, they told us, well, you know, we, we, we can't do anything because we need a Senate. Well, by a grace of God, like Georgia flipped, we got the Senate, we got the vice president. Why, like, why is there always these excuses? You know, it's just like there's always like an excuse. And so it's like, what's the point of us going out? voting when our voting rights are being attacked and are under assault and you're not going to do anything like there's no point in voting you to give power if you're not going to take that power and use it to get stuff done liz preach god's work <laughs> you're doing god's work liz thank you for this we have one more call tarif we have about a minute what's going on my man thank you for taking my call i'm gonna try to say as much as i can first free julian science if russia want to really hurt the u.s economically they can start offering the price of, of like one troy ounce of gold for like fifty barrels, which which mean would be cheap, which would cause a run on gold would drive would drive the price of gold up, and, and they'll peg the uh, ruble to gold, which means the ruble will go up and become as strong as the dollar. My second comment is dealing with is too wrong as Russia gave if Ukraine is still attacked, still attack the um the Russian territory, Russia gonna start attacking other uh, communication stations as in Ukraine that was off the list, they'll put it on the list. And also, if Finland... Oh, I saw that, Tarif. If Finland, yeah, I I saw that part. And we can talk about that one tomorrow. But Tarif, we've got to close it. We're coming up to the end. Guys, I want to thank all of you. Fault lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank our producers who've been doing great work. Um, And I want to thank all of you. Um, Yeah, there have been changes to the show, but we're going to keep it moving. You guys have a phenomenal awesome great great day and i will see you bright and early early in the morning fault lines signing out fault lines